0: This is Jocko podcast number 218 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. In the Marine Corps in Vietnam, first and second lieutenants made up about 65% of the Marine officers killed in action. Now, if you, if you add captains, Marine Corps captains, O3s onto that, you get to about 85% of all Marine officers killed in Vietnam were in these, these relatively junior ranking officers. These were the platoon and company commanders. And if you go to 1968, 1968 was the year with the highest number of Americans killed in action in Vietnam 16,899 that's over 1,400 per month 1,400 per month killed in action now to put that in perspective a little bit during the heaviest fighting when I was in Iraq which was in 2006 there was 823 Americans killed now obviously every single loss is a is a tragedy but during the Vietnam War the tragedy was 20 X that number 20 times more people killed in 1968 in Vietnam than there were in Iraq in 2006 that is just a it's just a different level now in total in Vietnam there were 14,836 marines killed 1,387 of those were officers. So that's basically 10% of the Marines killed were officers, and as I already said, 85% of them were these junior officers. Now, if you just run that math out a little bit, there's generally around going to be one officer in an infantry platoon, and there's going to be around 40 guys, which means... That these officers make up for about 2.5 percent of Marines and then again just by my estimation just some rough math that means that these young marine officers were about four times more likely to be killed than the enlisted guys and you if you think about that, you, 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 you wonder why, why is that? How's that happen? Well, from a, from a tactical perspective, first of all, the enemy knows what I say all the time, and that is that leadership is the most important thing on the battlefield. And because of that, the enemy aims to kill the leaders. And then on top of that, Marine officers are trained to be the first one on the ground, the first one that's off the helicopter, the first one that's out of the vehicle, the first one in in the combat situation, and then the last to leave, the last to load the helicopter, the last to get inside of an APC. So right there, your chances go up because you're in it longer, and that might only be an extra 30 seconds, but those moments when you're inserting, you're extracting from the battlefield, those are the most critically dangerous moments, usually and then on top of all that you add to the fact that as an officer you generally lead from somewhere near the front of the patrol maybe you're behind the point man maybe you're behind the point man in the first automatic weapons gunner and since you're in the front of the patrol well that increases your exposure to booby traps it increases your exposure to ambushes And then, of course, on top of all those things, when the time comes, you actually have to lead. You actually have to step up. You actually have to make decisions. You actually have to get your men to maneuver on the battlefield. That's what your job is. And by the way, that job description is not just some theoretical job description. This is what the Marine the young Marine officers in Vietnam actually did. And here's a here's an example of what a young Marine Corps officer did in Vietnam. The President of the United States of America takes pleasure in presenting the Silver Star to Second Lieutenant Charles Robert Eisenbach, United States Marine Corps, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action while serving as platoon commander with Company D, 1st Reconnaissance Battalion, 1st Marine Division, FMF, in connection with operations against the enemy in the Republic of Vietnam. On 4 July 1968, Second Lieutenant Eisenbach was leading a reconnaissance patrol when the unit suddenly came under intense small arms and automatic weapons fire from a numerically superior North Vietnamese Army force and the lead elements were pinned down. Realizing the seriousness of the situation, he immediately directed the remainder of his men to maneuver to aid the beleaguered Marines while he fearlessly moved forward to direct the fire of his men. Ignoring the enemy fire impacting around him, he moved about the fire-swept terrain, deploying his men into advantageous firing positions and directing their fire until he was seriously wounded. Although he was partially paralyzed and unable to move, he continued to direct his men while simultaneously adjusting airstrikes and supporting artillery fire upon the hostile positions. Disregarding his painful injury, he resolutely controlled his unit throughout the remainder of the firefight. His heroic and timely actions were an inspiration to all who observed him and contributed significantly to the accomplishment of his unit's mission. By his courage, superb leadership, and unwavering devotion to duty in the face of great personal danger, Second Lieutenant Eisenbach. Upheld the highest traditions of the Marine Corps and of the United States Naval Service Now when you hear an award write up like that You kind of have to ask yourself who who are these men where did these men come from? Where did they learn this level of courage and bravery? And where did they learn to lead? Well, it is an honor to say that today we have one of those men with us. As a matter of fact, we have that man. The man whose Silver Star Citation I just read his name is Charles Robert Eisenbach, or Ike, as he was known. And he's here to share his story so that we can learn some of the lessons from him about leadership and about life. Ike, thanks for coming on, appreciate it. My pleasure. <laughs> great, great to meet you. And uh, luckily, your, your son, and your daughter put together um, a bunch of information, kind of a timeline of your life, which made it really easy for me to prepare for this podcast because that's normally what I have to go back and do. But Matt, appreciate you doing that. Not a problem. And uh, it starts off where I, where I always like to start off these podcasts, in the beginning. So, sir? Sir? Let's talk about your childhood. Let's talk about, like, uh, what was young Ike doing? Where'd you come from? Well, young Ike wasn't around, but young Bob
1: was, or Bobby, because (laughs) I was Bob or Bobby to the family before I went in the service. And uh, about a week into the Naval Academy, Plebe Summer, squad leader got us all out one night and gave us nicknames. Some stuck, some didn't. Ike (laughs) stuck. So that's the way that was. But when Bobby was growing up, uh, Bobby's dad was a current naval officer. And uh, somewhere just to the right of Attila the Hun, I would say, uh, he, was a, he was a hard man. Uh, but uh, we had an interesting childhood, moved every couple of years, back and forth the east coast, west coast, spent a couple of years in Lima, Peru, and ended up in at Subic Bay in the Philippines graduating from high school out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was an interesting childhood.
0: Did, did uh, so was he was he
1: in World War II? He was. He was a naval aviator. He out of the naval academy class of thirty six, flew PBYs. Uh, as he used to say, flying used to be fun. You know, you'd put on the silk scarf go up for 45 minutes or so and he said then somebody invented this damn pby which stayed aloft for 12 hours and uh, flying was not so much fun (laughs) after that but that's that's what he did in world war ii he was in the olongapo in the philippines when the war broke with his squadron which i think was vp 101 Uh, they kind of got out just by the hair of their uh, chinny chin chin worked their way south down the philippine islands to java current day indonesia uh, and ended up in Perth, Australia. Uh, from there, he uh, I think he came back to the US for about a year and did whatever they did with the folks in uh, World War II back then, uh, and, and went back, picked up uh, command of a seaplane tender, the San Pablo, and worked his way back up the Pacific with uh, MacArthur's group. Uh, I think it was the Battle of Leyte Gulf, not as a combatant, because the so, seaplane tender is not uh, you know one or two five inch guns on it, they they didn't go out there and shoot it up with anybody. But we yeah. hope not. No, no. <laughs> not. Well, yeah, and they carried <sighs> ab gas and ammunition, so that wouldn't have been a pretty picture. But, uh, and after World War II, you know, came back. Uh, I didn't. He didn't see me until I was a year old, I guess. And I didn't know what I looked like because he said my mom's pictures were just nothing but <laughs> blurred. You know. uh, so and and we just picked up the family from there started moving uh sister was born a couple years later after after i was born in arlington virginia uh I said we'd we'd go we'd come back to coronado once or twice um you know before the bridge before Before the the bridge bridge. that's right it was it was the ferry (laughs) back then And, and that was a big deal of course when you're a little kid it was ferries are fun you know when you're when you're Apparent, I guess they're just a pain in the butt because you're trying to get back and report to Coronado from San Diego on a time schedule. And so, how long how long did he stay in for? He was in for 26 years, had a heart attack out in the Philippines, mm-hmm. his last duty station. And uh, back in the 60s, a heart attack was you were, you were just automatic uh, medical retirement. So, they shipped him back to Newport and he was retired probably up to about 27, 28
0: years. And how old were you at this point?
1: I uh was in first year of college at the University of Utah when he had his heart attack. Uh, I went into the Naval Academy the following year.
0: So when you were growing up, were you thinking about I mean, obviously, if you went to the University of Utah, were you, did you want to go in the Navy at that point?
1: <sighs> well my my dad being my dad, you know he had prepped me for the Naval Academy. you know we had visited there when I was younger and everything like that. When I was about a junior in high school, he would start with, uh, well, Bobby, what are you going to do after you graduate from high school? And, you know, I didn't have a good answer. No answer was going to be just right. I knew what the answer should be. But, uh, so, but I eventually I started to say, well, Dad, I think I'm going to go to college. That kind of satisfied him for a few months, and then he came back and said, well, who do you think is going to pay for that? <laughs> well, that had me stumped for another couple of months. <laughs> But finally, by the end of my junior year, I said, Dad, you know, I think you're going to pay for it. And so that's kind of stopped that. So we got out to the Philippines, graduated from high school out there, had 17 in my graduating class, all-time high for George Dewey, junior, senior high school. Uh, And I still, you know, I wasn't going to go to the Naval Academy, That just just wasn't in my scheme of things. So three of us, uh, Got accepted to the University of Utah. I went to the University of Utah because it was the one school that accepted me out of high school. <laughs> Not that I had bad grades or anything. You know, I had decent grades and good recommendations, but that's just uh, you know the way things worked out in in uh, the early '60s. This was '62 when I graduated from high school. So uh, three of us went off from our graduating from my graduating class off to, to Salt Lake City and and was we enrolled as freshmen at the University of Utah. There was a get together of all the freshmen I mean, before school officially started and i don't know who was up there on the on the stage but he was touting the, the diversity back then of of their in, entering class and so he'd have you stand up and he said and we have three gentlemen here from the philippines would you stand please so us three gringos kind of stood up and people were <laughs> looking at us like oh, you're from the philippines yeah well yeah you know technically we were uh, which you know leads me to a really what I thought at the time was quite a funny story. We, uh, it's, uh, in Utah at the time, you couldn't get anything higher than a 3.2 beer. Uh, but, uh, and you know, you couldn't smoke unless you were older than 18, which you'd get tickets for if they caught you, they being the Salt Lake City Police. But somehow we uh, liberated some beer one night, and we had a guy in the dorm who had a car. So we went up to Canyon Road that evening, and, and we're drinking beer up there. And next thing we know, there's a cop car right behind us, and a cop gets out and says, All right, you guys, get out of the car. There was the three of us from the Philippines, and a friend of ours whose dad was in the uh, diplomatic corps. So he starts uh, at one end and says, you know, Where are you from? It's Philippines, sir. Next kid, Philippines. Me, Philippines. And so he comes to the last kid. He says, I suppose you're from the Philippines, too. And the kid says, no, sir, I'm from Saudi Arabia. (laughs) So he said, you know, guys, if you go about half a mile up the road, we don't go that far up there. (laughs) So meanwhile, we had dumped the beer and everything. So, you know, that was was just... uh, that was the deal in salt lake city
0: and then at what point did you start thinking i'm going to go to the naval academy instead of continuing with your career at the university of utah
1: my career at the university of utah was fading fast shall we say (laughs) i had joined nrotc and really enjoyed that but the the rest of academics uh, really you know weren't my forte Uh, about christmas time my parents were back in, in newport rhode island so i caught a train back to there for christmas and and that's when uh, my dad and I had some serious talks about, you know, what I was going to do. And I said, well, okay. I promised him, I had to promise him, uh, that I would apply to the Naval Academy. And, and I wasn't, you know, that keen on it, but, you know, i got to keep dad happy. Uh, you know, happy dad, and he kept that $50 a month spending money coming, <laughs> which typically was spent long before it arrived. So I applied to the Naval Academy, took the SAT one weekend. And it did surprisingly well. And a couple of months later, I get this little envelope in the mail, and I'm thinking, you know, gosh. Well, actually, it was a packet. I guess it wasn't just an envelope. And I was thinking, I was afraid to open it. My roommate said, you know, if it was going to be, a, if it's a rejection letter, it's probably just a simple letter. And he said, you get a packet. They're probably gonna. You're probably in. So sure enough, I opened it up. I'd been accepted got a presidential appointment from JFK, and and it went off. I. I had some uh, interesting experiences as an NROTC kiddo at uni at uh, Utah, and one came from a senior enlisted uh, Marine. There was a gunny, just an outstanding gent, and he he couldn't do enough for you. He organized the little programs on the weekends where we go out and set up ambushes uh, in the canyons up up from Salt Lake or up from the University of Utah, and uh, it's really so he kind of. I think that that's where I got the idea that I wanted to be a marine mm-hmm. from uh, Gunny, whose name I can't remember, but
0: was he a uh, World War II guy?
1: I don't think so. I think he was more of a Korean guy. Oh, okay, yeah, you know, uh, just outstanding. He couldn't do enough for you, and uh, he, in my speech class, <sighs> had to give a, a a speech that used a a prop, and uh, so we had just had a class on the. Thompson submachine gun. Now you can't imagine doing that. You couldn't do this today. No. So, so so I said, Hey, Gunny, can I borrow the Thompson submachine gun? You know, like on Tuesday for my speech class. It'll be gone for a couple of hours. And I had a I had a, <laughs> a guitar case from somebody on the on my floor in the in the dorm that I carried it in. So I I'm carrying. I'm walking across campus with this guitar case with a Thompson submachine gun. In. <laughs> Didn't think a thing of it. You know, back then. This, again, this was sixty fall of 62 uh, got to the speech class and said you know kind of set the class up I'm here to talk about you know my whatever I, I don't what I forget what word I use but I didn't my weapon here but my device here in the case of course everybody thought it was going to be a guitar I popped up with this Thompson submachine gun the prof nearly keels over <laughs> So I gave him a little spiel. It was very well received, I must say. I think I got an A for the speech, but he, uh, he gave me a pretty good uh, tongue lashing about bringing such a thing to a classroom. You know, much probably less nervous it, to give you any other grade. Nah, no, <laughs> probably not, but you know, it was fun.
0: So uh, when you, when you how long was it between when you got your acceptance letter and when you actually showed up for uh, plebe summer?
1: Showed up for plebe summer on June 26th of 1963, and I probably got my acceptance letter uh, in March, March, April, something like that.
0: And were you were you mentally prepared for plebe summer?
1: I believe I was. Yes, uh, in fact, I uh, had pretty much come to all stop ac- academically at Utah when I got the acceptance letter because they had had my first semester grades and that was all they were going to evaluate. So I uh, kind of ditched college for the next four or five months. There was a joke I heard later in the, in the, ROT, in the NROTC unit was later that the, they joked that the way to get in the Naval Academy was to flunk out of the University of Utah.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I did okay there. I struggled with academics at the, the Naval Academy but I looked at it more as a leadership laboratory I guess.
0: And, and then, so so now it's 1963. You said when you started that? started, yeah, yeah. Are you guys even thinking about Vietnam at this point? No, we're not. I
1: don't. I can't even recall, you know, hearing about Vietnam. At Utah, that fall we had, uh, you know, heard and been not part of, but you know, the whole whole deal had been about the Cuban crisis. That's that was all the news that fall. Uh, we followed that pretty closely, but nah, I don't think we had heard about Vietnam at all.
0: Yeah, and th- I mean, things were not really escalated there at all. Yet, no, so. no, not at that time. It's no surprise. And you were in a, I mean, you had some pretty uh, notable people in your, in your Naval Academy class. <laughs> well, this is true. <laughs> uh, I became
1: friends early on uh, with a fellow who by then, at that time, went by Larry, Larry North. He now goes by Ollie. Uh, one, of, one of my friends uh, in the class after that was Jim Webb He was a boxer, I was a boxer, North was a boxer A bunch of the guys I hung up with were boxers uh, We had a fellow named Ray Smith who later on became a two-star uh, seal uh-huh. I believe mm-hmm. the first one to, to carry two stars, I'm not sure about that But uh, good guy, captain of the track team Uh, had pete pace in the class first uh marine to ever be chair of the joint chiefs of staff four stars you know pretty pretty heavy duty company (laughs) yeah and then uh what about what about uh was staubach with you guys too staubach was in the class of 65 he was two years ahead of us but our plebe year the first year there was the year he won the heisman trophy uh which of course uh Argued well for plebes because after a football game, if you won, you'd have carry on that weekend. And if you beat Army, you got carry on, meaning you didn't have to brace up in the halls and, and you know, chop around in the halls. <laughs> and, and you didn't have to sit on the last couple of inches of your chair in the mess. And
0: I, I know you got another guy that have got some information on a, a guy by the name of Tex. Tex Harkins, a fellow from. Uh,
1: Texas, needless to say, uh, was my roommate, plebe summer and plebe year, one of several. Met him when I first came into the room with a, a sea bag full of gear that I now had a stencil. He had, he'd been there a couple of hours, and it introduced himself as Maurice. Well, I I did a double take. I didn't think Maurice was going to fly, and sure enough, a couple hours later when. When I was worn out from hearing about how great things were in Texas, you know, he became Tex. And Tex stuck, he's still Tex to this day.
0: Good guy. And there's some note about uh, uh, him trying to kill a firstie? Nah, that wasn't Tex. That, was, oh, okay. that was North.
1: Uh, I stopped North going into this firsty's room early morning when we had win- window closing detail in the winter. You'd have to go in and close the upper class windows. And he was headed off to this first class room with a with a bayonet, bayonet, and he was going to do this guy in. <laughs> this guy was horseshit beyond belief. Uh, I said, North, you can't do that. <laughs> You'll get in serious trouble, buddy.
0: <laughs> yeah, you can't kill someone. You're going to get in serious That's trouble. Right. That's good advice, right there. Plebe <laughs> was a little different back then, I think. Uh, not quite the same anymore. <laughs> and then, uh, so you talked about boxing and. Were you a boxer before you showed up there? Negative. No, no. You just got into it when you were I there. was not a
1: particularly athletic uh, young man, uh, but boxing was something that most of everybody started up from ground zero with no experience. So that's kind of what I did. Plebe summer and uh, took it on to plebe year and boxed uh, plebe year, some youngster year, which is sophomore year, and second class year, junior year. Uh, first class year, senior year, I was in academic trouble, shall we say. So, uh, I uh, I wasn't on the boxing team, but I did uh, run the boxing sub squad, where freshmen and sophomores ended up if they failed boxing uh, as part of the PT curriculum. Uh, you'd have to go to a sub squad. This was for every sport until you could, you know, you the sub leader of the sub squad past you, so you'd get a D. Because uh, you couldn't have an F at the naval. Did academy. they
0: make you? I, I know guys that I know that went to naval academy. They made them box for a semester. They made them wrestle for a semester. They made them do judo for a semester. Did, did they make you guys do wrestling and judo?
1: We uh, we did
0: wrestling, boxing. We had some part of the PT
1: curriculum where was mandatory. You had two years of boxing lessons, two years of of uh, wrestling, two years of uh, gymnastics. Okay. And four years of swimming, and, and they fed in all kinds of other things, like squash and golf and track. But, uh, yeah, first two years you had some mandatory things that you had to pass as part of the, the PT curriculum.
0: Didn't have judo. Mm. Well, like still, that. boxing and wrestling is a is an awesome base to have as a fighter. And then you throw uh, judo is. in there, <laughs> oh, you're, yeah. you're pretty good to go. Yeah, you are. And then what? Um, I know you did some cornering. For some of the guys, you know, uh, when, when they were boxing. I did. That was my senior year, first class year. And
1: North uh, was in the finals, the boxing finals. You could win your Navy N, your letter, uh, in boxing, uh, even though it was a, not an intramural sport so much, but it was a more of a club sport. But we didn't, we didn't box against other institutions. They do now. But it was all within the brigade. Uh, and we have champion. We'd have, you know, quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals. And uh, I was in North Corner uh, the year he won his N. Uh, boxing against another well-known uh, uh, Naval Academy graduate, Jim Webb, who I think you've had on your program before. Yeah, yeah indeed. And uh, shall we say it was interesting? <laughs> Webb, <laughs> Webb had a lot of experience boxing. He'd boxed uh, Golden Gloves, I believe, before he came to the Naval Academy or at least uh, city and county type boxing, state boxing, from wherever his dad was stationed at the time. But uh, he and North, never they were two folks that were butt heads, I think, uh, their entire careers, uh, whenever they would run into each other, certainly at the Naval Academy and certainly when they were boxing. But it was an interesting night. So this is a legit grudge match. I think that probably would be fair to say. (laughs) And how'd it go down? Uh, North won, <laughs> much to everybody's surprise. North was the was the street fighter, and uh, Webb was a more polished boxer.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, if you boxed, if you boxed certainly at the Golden Gloves level, even at like the county level, you're a, you're a really good oh, boxer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that's a that's a big achievement.
1: Well, that uh, somehow there's been. Uh, you know, people look backwards, and it, that always comes up when you start talking about north and or Whip. You know, it was, it was the, the boxing match. Uh, everybody knew it was a did it Did it go the distance?
0: Journey. It
1: did, the distance being only three rounds, you know, back then.
0: Yeah. Are they two-minute rounds or three-minute rounds? Because sometimes they have amateurs box uh, two-minute um, rounds. I think they were two-minute rounds, yeah. They were, they so three. six minutes of
1: fury. Boy, I'll tell you, yeah. <laughs> And I know wrestling can wipe you out and uh you know five six minutes but, but we were we were spent when you know at the end of a boxing match you we were spent because all you could do to is pull yourself out of the out of the ring
0: and what did you what, like for for boxing for you since you were new to boxing and you weren't much of an athlete before what do you think you took away from boxing
1: well uh don't quit I'm, i went to the semifinals. Uh, semi-finals uh My junior year, got knocked out of the ring by that guy, by my (laughs) my opponent. Got back up, got back in the ring, took the standing eight count, and finished the fight. And uh, I know I met a Marine officer a year later when I was, you know, on service selection night, when I was able to select the Marine Corps, and he said, gutsiest thing I've ever seen. Well, thank you, sir. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, I learned you don't quit. It ain't
0: over until it's over, you know and it was over that night for me but and you mentioned from the gunny that uh, you worked with at the university of utah that you were thinking marine corps when you showed up at the naval academy was that was that did that did you stick with that the whole time i did you know uh my dad being career in navy uh, i knew i would
1: i could never feel his footsteps uh, and he just, he was perplexed why I would want to go <laughs> marine corps uh, he he asked me straight out one time i think it was a, a first year a senior he said uh, Bobby, what is it that the uh, Marine Corps 2nd Lieutenant has that a Navy incident doesn't have? You know, they got three hot meals a day, a nice bed with sheets to sleep in. So what what is it Marine Corps 2nd Lieutenant got that a Navy incident doesn't have? I looked at him and said, yeah, I think it's respect. Ooh. Shots fired. Shut, hey. the, shut the old man
0: down. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's, that's, definitely, uh, that's definitely shots fired yeah. for sure. <laughs> and uh my grandpa was not
3: somebody you would probably want to say that to uh i don't know about at the time though
1: well he was <laughs> not some. the nicest guy <laughs> uh, he uh, he just was uh, like i said a little to the right of a till the Hun, and uh, there was a couple of ways to do things there was his way and then there was everybody else's uh he he took me out for dinner before i you know got on the train to head off from the naval academy from a from uh, Providence, Rhode Island, where I could catch the train back then. And he said, he told me, he said, Bobby, you graduate from the Naval Academy and I'll buy you the car of your choice. Oh, thank you, Dad. Four years later, I'm getting close to graduation. I said, Dad, you remember when I when when I when I left for the Naval Academy you told me you'd buy me the car of my choice if I graduate? He looked at me and said, Did you get it in writing?
0: <laughs> um, no, <laughs> And as you, as the other thing that's unfolding is it's in 1963, when you show up there, Hey, I'm going to be a Marine, but you, there's no war going on. Now we fast forward. It's 19, well, 1967. Yeah. No. And Vietnam is now, I mean, Vietnam really started to escalate in like 1965, 1966, even more 1967. I mean, you guys now know in the Marine Corps what you're signing up for. There's no mystery.
1: Oh no no no! We knew precisely what we were signing up for. Uh, there was a, a board. I, th- I think this has been referenced uh, in other places and uh, books and articles. A board of you know those who've gone before us; those who've died. And it was starting to fill up with uh, you know pictures and names from Vietnam. So yeah, we understood that. Uh, but you know, having I'm sure been combat yourself that. Uh, as you know, you, it's not going to happen to you. Yeah. Maybe the guy on the left or the right, but not you. You're, you're bulletproof, at least in your own mind. Uh, and So, you know, you're worried about maybe getting maimed. Fact, I don't think we even worried about that. You're worried about possibly getting killed, but then, hey, there's nothing after that. You know, your worries are done. <laughs> and, and, and then your family picks up on it. Uh, or you thought you might get a little, you know, flea flicker, flea Flicker a wound or something like that, and get a purple heart. But you never figured, you know, you might come back without limbs uh, or otherwise, you know, markedly impaired. That just never entered your mind. I'm sure if it did, you would have been useless uh, to your unit. Yeah.
0: In the uh, the guys that are all all going for the Marine option at the academy, it's competitive, right? It's like it's hard to get that. Mar- Is it hard to get that Marine option coming out of the academy? Oh uh, well. I'm not, I can't
1: speak for today because today they'll have like 250 you know, guys and gals going to Marine Corps. In uh, my day and in the years, in the 60s and before, there was a certain percentage of a class that could go to Marine Corps. We had uh, some, just about 900 guys in my class, and we had 86 slots. And they were divided in half from the, they took half from the upper uh, half of the class, grade-wise, and half from the lower So you could get in the Marine Corps, say, and be in the middle of the lower half of your class, when a fellow who was in the lower part of the upper half of his class wouldn't have got selected because those, you know, 43 slots were gone. And I got slot 86 when when I went down for service selection night. Uh, I was sweating bullets, but, uh, but I got it. In fact, a good friend of mine who was a couple of numbers behind me offered me two grand for my spot if I would give it up. and Because so, he wanted to go Marine Corps. And I knew how much he wanted to go to Marine Corps. I said, you know, I, I can't do that. You, you know that. He said, yeah, I know that. But the, the, it was competitive in that respect. It was, you know, academics played a lot. A big part in it.
0: Yeah, the, the, the Marine Corps does that um, with the way they give your jobs in the Marine Corps, too. Like, coming out of the basic school. Uh, I know like, they take, like, the class and break it up into thirds. And, like, the first you you pick your job mm-hmm. so you could be the number 1 guy and you might mu- you, or you if you get the number 1 guy you can get your job but you might be the top of the next third down and you get your selection then the top of the last third and you get your selection so it's a it's it's a way that they distribute the people so that right. not every single the, the the top of the class goes. Everyone goes infantry, and the whatever right, right. job is at the bottom, we get a bunch of people that weren't the highest performers. Right, right. exactly. The Marine Corps is smart. It's about the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps.
1: <laughs> Marine Corps understands that it's about the Marine Corps because they haven't lasted this long without uh, being able to put up a good fight, both uh, you know, in a nation's wars and back in the D.C. area when the, when the time comes along for. You know, keeping the Marine Corps the Marine Corps
0: and now was as is your dad talking to you any more about looking at you and saying Hey, son, there's a war going on and he's you know Obviously being in the Navy in World War two. He knows exactly what the Marine Corps does And yeah. he's is he having any more talks to you and saying hey you might want to think about this a little bit more
1: No, not a one you know, he, he kind of respected my decision I guess and uh, just you know, let me go with it Like I say he's an interesting person I got back to Bethesda after I was shot. I spent twelve months in Bethesda. He came to see me once, which for him was probably enough and actually for me, it was enough too uh, but i you know I later on found out that uh you know he obviously was affected you know by by my being moved. uh I kind of joked at him one day one day we were out you know barbecuing some hot dogs or something. And I said, Dad, you almost collected on, on my life insurance. He said, What are you talking about, Bobby? I said, Well dad, you know, you almost got that ten ten grand of you know, servicemen's group life insurance from 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 my demise in Vietnam. I said, Don't talk like that. That was it. No.
0: That's yeah. that's that's the affection you got that's from the, the old that day. was the yeah, that was <laughs> the understanding <laughs> and the compassion that I, I got from Dad. So you get done with you get done with the naval academy, you graduate, um, and now you're going to the basic school.
3: Right, right. Do you remember what uh, rank you were at the academy? Like what?
1: How close to the bottom were you? <laughs> oh, I think I was uh, Since on service selection night you went down in groups of fifty, which is why I was sweating getting a place in the Marine Corps because you know they could have all been gone by the time I got down there in the last group of fifty. 'Cause I was in the last group of fifty. Oh, there you go. So <laughs> Answers that question. <laughs> you weren't an anchor man, so you didn't
3: no, I you wasn't. you didn't an collect anchor. any money. No, I
1: didn't get the dollar from everybody, but uh Oh is that
0: what the last happens with the last that's guy? That's right. The Allegedly, man, you know.
3: I've never confirmed, but the last person in the class gets a dollar from, from everybody every classmate. Else, yeah.
0: wow.
1: So you can walk off with, you know, six, seven, eight, nine hundred bucks. <laughs> <laughs> the the spot of distinction, I guess. <laughs> Or or not? Well, we—you still graduated, <laughs> so I
3: guess at that point it doesn't matter. And you got paid. So. My
1: my class, we were kind of put out by because our anchor man was a a foreign national, I think from a country that didn't even have a navy. <laughs> so we were like, do we even want to fork over this buck for, for this guy? And of course we did because that was just—it's a tradition. It's always been that way.
0: So uh, you show up at TBS, and now it's nineteen sixty. Eight? No,
1: no. Graduated in June of June 7th of 67. And I put in for the first basic school class that was forming, which was the first of July. That was the, the beginning of the fiscal year back then, July 1st. So, you know, I had a few weeks at home, boom, right back down to, to Quantico to start the, the basic school.
0: Okay, so you started in the summer, sometime in oh, yeah. the summer of 67. Yeah, yeah. Right. And in what, how well did the Naval Academy prepare you for the basic school? I think pretty
1: well. Uh, of course, we, we didn't ever get into the tactical side of things at the Naval Academy for, for the Marine Corps, but, uh, you know, you were in good shape. You obviously could wear your uniform, whichever it was, Marine Corps or Navy uniform, well, because you've been doing it for the past four years. Uh, and I had gone to jump school between on my summer leave between junior and senior year and you know the physical requirements for that were pretty demanding you know we got down to fort benning in august after cruise and man that baby is hot that red clay in georgia reflects that heat up and you sweat
3: they saw those midshipmen coming
1: <laughs> uh, and of course you know we, we were we'd we'd uh, be running around with navy chairs and any cadre fell you know a staff sergeant or something could pop up and You know, halt us and drop us for push-ups and everything, which which we loved. Uh, I don't think there were any UDT or SEAL groups going through when we went through, but they just ate the program
0: up. You know. Yeah. Needless to say. I I, yeah, I went. I was one of the. Eventually, SEALs stopped going to Airborne School at Fort Benning, Georgia, and started running it in-house. Okay. But yeah, I, I was lucky enough to go to Airborne School, and and yes, the. The instructors down there definitely appreciated our presence and let us know that. Sure they did. <laughs> and it's, it's ridiculous, too, because we're coming out of, you know, buds right. literally a week or whatever. You know, we travel yeah. cross-country. We show up there. So we're in really good shape. So there was really nothing good. that they could do to us exactly. that would hurt us. And we just would. And, of course, that encouraged guys to be, you know, wise asses. And, you know, I'm going to make you do push-ups. You can't make me do enough push-ups. So there's that, that whole thing going. And, uh, and now, now that you're at TBS, though, well, now you know exactly what's going to happen. You know you're going to go to Vietnam.
1: Right. Regardless of your MOS that you came out with, of course, I wanted to be an O3, and most of my
0: friends did, too. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So it's not actually guaranteed. So I'm, I'm thinking you still have to do a service selection inside or inside whatever, a job selection Corps. inside e- the Marine Corps.
1: Exactly. Exactly. You put in for your top three, and, and you hope you get number one, of course. and and the most guys did uh, you're pretty savvy about your capabilities and your you know likes and dislikes by the time uh, you get to TBS I think regardless of where you come from you know we had a lot of recent ROTC grads some recent OCS grads and the Naval Academy grads and you couldn't distinguish who came from what mm-hmm. pipeline mm-hmm. you know we were all pretty motivated folks back then
0: and uh i'm sure all the instructors must have been guys that were coming off of tours of they Vietnam. were just
1: back from their tours and i mean they were all captains or above yeah very sharp guys they didn't they didn't pick uh, slackers you know to be uh instructors at tbs so
0: and how i mean compared to the naval academy was it just a totally different vibe of seriousness because they know what exactly what they're preparing you guys for it sure was uh you know
1: you're, you're out on problems uh Daytime problems, nighttime problems, uh, didn't matter when they ended. You know, if you got back and, and turned in any gear you checked out at 3 a.m. in the morning, you're still up you know, at 0 dark 30 the next morning. Well, you didn't do that at the Naval Academy. You, know, you had study hour and stuff like that. But, uh, now, there was a definitely heightened level of seriousness, seriousness at the basic school. Again, all the instructors were giving you straight poop you know, because they had just come back from there or recently back. My uh, platoon commander, we had a platoon of about 50 guys. He was a, a captain, two silver stars, you know, well-decorated, big guy. You know, they don't take, uh, again, I, the Marine Corps looks at you all kinds of ways. They uh, look at how you did at basic school, uh, your height uh, versus, versus your weight. Uh, some other, fa- obviously, other factors before they assign you someplace. Like if, you're, if you think you want to get to, to 8th and I., uh, and be part of that uh, in washington d c you know you 've got to be like six feet or higher and taller or whatever because <laughs> you know they 're sending the cream of the, the cream of their crap because you're you know you 're representing the United States Marine Corps in front of the public on a regular basis, and rightfully so you know all the services do that you know the the guards at arlington uh, aren 't you know four feet eight and sloppy you know <laughs> they 're all standing tall and looking good and very professional, needless to say
0: how hard was it to uh You know, when you when you started picking your job, obviously you said you wanted to be an infantry infantry platoon commander. Mm -hmm. How much competition was there for that? Did you have guys that were like, "Oh, I'm not doing that. Uh, I'm not doing that job. You can have it." Was there was there competition for it?
1: Um, I think there was only comp. There we didn't feel competition. You know, obviously had to do well on the O course and all the different evolutions, and you had to pass the PRT and. You know, you had to do well in land navigation, daytime, nighttime. Do well on the rifle range and pistol range. But that was that was just part of the competition of TBS. You were always competing with your, with your. What do you call? Them? Your classmates. Classmates, yeah, your classmates mm-hmm. at, at TBS. Oh. But uh, you know, a lot of guys wanted to go infantry and. Obviously, not everybody was going to go infantry. I don't know what the selection process was, but uh, uh, I had a good friend from the Naval Academy. Not really a good friend, but he uh, he was he was the kind of guy that would go around and say, are you going to go infantry too? Also, meaning also, and, of course, you had no idea. <laughs> it depends on what the Marine Corps, uh, so what their selection process was and whether you made it or not, and he ended up not getting uh, infantry, which was probably... Probably a good move for him and the core
0: is there any is there anything that you had struggles with when you were going through the basic school
1: Oh other than maybe you know the o course or something like that, but that was just a, you know a, a eight minute struggle <laughs> <laughs> and as long as you were doing the best best you could uh, you know they, they didn't beat you up too hard or, or mark you down, but no i didn't really feel a that there was anything that was going to hold me back
0: and they're training you with all the tactics small unit tactics naval gunfire calling for fire all, all there are you feeling like you were you feeling like you were getting good preparation for the battlefield
1: i did uh what the what the basic school does is is it teach you everything you need to know as a company level officer you know from your time as a second lieutenant up to to a uh, captain uh after that there's an, another school there's I'm not sure what it's called, but, uh, you know, for, for senior captains and new majors. But, uh, yeah, I felt well prepared. They had a, a, a Vietnam village built up in Quantico, staffed, of course, by Vietnamese. Duh. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, you practice that, you, you know, you, you did helicopter operations, you did, uh, you know, walk-in insertions, you did land navigation, daytime and night, uh, which I'm sure, you know, is a, a different, a horse of a different color. It is indeed. Uh, but uh, I, I was apparently was pretty proficient. Uh, I graduated seventh in the class, not uh, first like uh, Webb did in his class, but that's that's okay. <laughs> seven was good enough for a letter of accommodation coming out of the basic school. So.
0: And that's seven out of class of how many? At about 240 or so. Okay. Yeah. So it seems like you were better at the uh, field craft than you were at the academics. Well, <laughs> this is true. <laughs>
1: In fact, in fact, you know, I got shot in the head, and I have classmates who said, uh, who, who still say to this day, I, we think that made you smarter, because you know? I, I did go on to graduate school and get a, a master's and a PhD. Uh, you know, after I was retired out of the Marine Corps, but, uh, and, and maybe there's something to that. I don't know.
0: So then, so the basic school is what six months long? About five and a half. Then, yeah, they were shortening it up. Five and a half months long, you get done with the basic school, you get infantry, right? and then what happens? Uh, I got
1: selected for reconnaissance replacement training, which was a couple of weeks in uh, Southern California, a week at uh, Pendleton, uh, again, for more supporting arms training in uh, artillery, that sort of thing Air, and then a week at Coronado for learning about naval gunfire support
0: did you use the uh the board what is they call that the smoke board did they have the little fake terrain setup that you could call for fire on i went to the i went to the uh marine corps naval gunfire school and they had this terrain board and it was kind of like a it must have been built in like 1975 and when you'd call for fire if you got in the right spot little smoke would come up through that spot and it was like you were looking at, you know, through binoculars somewhere. It was pretty good. No, I
1: never, never saw anything like that. Uh, we, were, we were actually firing, firing real live artillery at Pendleton and at the Naval Gunfire uh, Support School. We had this big board, but it was, it was blue. <laughs> it was the ships in the ocean, per se. Uh, but uh, that was interesting because I did one night get to fire the cruiser Providence. In Vietnam, uh, which was which was fun, you know, they, they, they couldn't use their six inch guns because they're too flat, so they used their five inch, you know, bringing indirect fire on. We had a bunch of lights below us. I think folks were trying to move move their troops around in the middle of the night, but uh, and we, you know, this this was on call for us, so
0: we used it. So you got to use the naval and gunfire. I did. And that was got- like a dream of mine ever <laughs> since I sat there on that little terrain board. <laughs> well, <laughs> It was a
1: dream of store. And, you know, I got to use my Bravo Zulu term (laughs) at the end of it to thank them for their fire. The Bravo
0: Zulu, the real Bravo Zulu. The real Bravo
1: Zulu, yeah.
0: That is outstanding. (laughs) That is outstanding. I never even, I never even got close to even remotely thinking about calling for naval gunfire for real, so. uh, I probably weren't too
1: close to, uh, you know, big waterways. (laughs) Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, And it, I don't know, there's always that thing where guys want to fire, you know, a bunch of different weapons. True. In combat, right? And I had one guy get, get shot in the chest, but it hit him in the chest plate. Uh-huh. So I wasn't with him, but they actually had video of this. So he gets shot in the chest plate, and so he's all mad. He's mad, and he shoots a bunch of machine gun rounds and. And someone goes, "Hey, shoot your pistol at him too." And he goes, he looks at him like, "Why?" What? And he says, "We'll it'll make you feel better." So he pulls his pistol out and shoots that too. Uh, but and I'm sure if he would have had naval gunfire, who knows? Maybe he would have. Maybe he would have gone for it.
1: <laughs> I don't know about the pistol. Uh, you know, when we fired the 45 for qualification uh, down at TBS, uh, I think our instructor actually told us, you know, in combat, if if this is all you've got, you know. You're probably just better off throwing the, the pistol at him than shooting at him because you have a better chance of hitting him, you know, the, the bad guy on the other end. Did, did you guys not have
3: infantry officer course back then? Because that's like a, you know, multi-month course
1: now after TBS. We did not. No, you were you're considered good to go, you know, after graduation on TBS. Yeah, I know now they have a 10-week uh, officer or infantry officer uh, training course which I think would be, have been outstanding
0: but we had what we had mm-hmm. so, so uh, you go to this you go to this recon course mm-hmm. and so now do you get, are you getting jump, jump pay and all that stuff now no you know even, even though it's
1: jump qualified if you're, if you're not in a unit that maintains uh. your jump qualification in the corps you don't get jump pay in fact we got to Vietnam in 1st recon battalion there was only one company you know, that maintained their jump status. That was Charlie Company, and they were the Force Recon Company. They did the same thing as the battalion recon companies did, but they did maintain their jump status, and so they got jump pay and every ever extra seventy-five bucks a month, which was a big deal back
0: then. So you end up you end up going through this uh, recon training, and then what happens? Then it's time. Is it time to deploy to Vietnam? It's time to get on a
1: bus and head up to. Uh, Air Force Base in San Bernardino. Don't know the name of it, but uh-huh. uh, and yeah, flew over, flew over to Okinawa. Spent a week there, so they really kind of dribb-
0: dribbled you in. Oh. Are you with Are you with uh, all different branches of servicemen? Or are you just with Marines at this point? Just just with Marines at this point.
1: Yeah, going over. Flew on Saturn Airlines, I believe. You know, a non-scheduled, non non-sched airline to Okinawa.
0: Oh, just like a civilian. Was there a civilian? Uh, uh what do they call hostesses, stewardesses? On there, stewardesses. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. A few stews, <laughs> <Blight> <laughs> attendants. <laughs> flight attendants, flight
1: attendants. But uh, yeah, typically, you wouldn't have uh, anything to do in Okinawa while you waited for your for your assignment to be flown into country. But uh, when I got to when we got to Okinawa, there was about five of us that were traveling together. We had been to the recon replacement training together, and uh, we were just milling around the uh, receiving area after we got off the the plane and uh, somehow i got up above somehow up higher up than the, than the crowd below me and i'm watching the, and uh, there's this young uh, lance corporal with a clipboard he's going to each uh, of the second lieutenants that i had you know my buddies and asking him some question and they're going no no so i said i said this poor kid you <laughs> know I've been in this position before, so I'll find out what's going on. So he, he, what he needed, his, uh, his uh, company, Gunny or something, had sent him down. He needed a signature from an officer to run three plane loads of Marines through a little program on, the, on Okinawa where you fam fired the M16 because none of us had ever seen an M16, much less fired one before we went into Vietnam. And so you had FAM fire, familiarize, fi- familiarize yourself fire the M16 before you went in country, made sure all your shots were up to date and all, of, all your paperwork was up to date. So I said, sure. You know, so I signed for him. I'd have to get up every night, every other night while I was there for about a week, meet an p- incoming plane at about 2 a.m. in the morning, find the senior enlisted guy on the plane, form these guys up, take them over to a barracks, had them draw a mattress, you know, Flop down, told him to be, you know, had to be out next morning at 7.30 in the morning and go to chow, and then we'd start him through the, the little program of, that you had to go through before you could get in country. So I'd, I met my three planes in a little more than a week's time. I was desperately afraid my, my officer buddies were going to rotate into country before I did. Didn't happen. We all went off together. Uh, but anyway, it was an interesting week.
0: What you shoot in uh, the basic school, the M14? M14, you know how'd you feel about the m16 when you got it
1: I loved it lightweight ammo lightweight uh, unfortunately most Marines in Vietnam f- found out they had pitted barrels and sure enough I had to trade mine yeah, in you know a month or two after I got there for a, <clears throat> one one that was a, a newer
0: one with a good barrel in it. that's crazy you guys didn't even get get didn't even shoot that weapon no. until you got to Okinawa that's right and then was the other training course that are giving you like basic like per- per- Preparation for Vietnam jungle navigation or something like that, or in Okinawa. Yeah, no,
1: you were just uh, you were just kind of on your own until you rotated in. K was getting hot then, so we used to we used to go to some three shack uh, operations mm-hmm. shack of some outfit on Okinawa and hear the morning brief about K and kind of look at each other and think, "Do you want to get sent there?" No, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no.
0: So then you spend that. So you spend that. What is it? A week in Okinawa? About yeah. And now you guys all fly over to Vietnam, right? right. And where do you fly into? Da Nang. And then when you get there, what's that process like? That process. We get there in the evening. It's dark again. Somebody
1: met you. You took you off somewhere. You grabbed a mattress, flopped you down in some barracks at the end of the runway, and uh, you slept until the next morning with all this (laughs) f force taking off above you. No sleep.
0: Did you side. have that stereotypical moment that uh, people talk about, which is, you know, the guys that are going home, the guys that are rotating home after their year. And you see that the contrast between the, the new guys showing up with their brand new gear and the old guys that are heading home and they look like they've been through hell and back. Uh, no, never saw anybody that was going home,
1: uh, you know, down at the Nang airfield. Uh, you know, didn't didn't see him. Mm-hmm. We arrived sometime in the middle of the night and it was dark and we had no you know, you know you you have that little kind of internal feeling of impending doom or dread or something. I don't know what it was. Maybe it was just uh, your adrenaline pumping, you know, that you're finally gonna get in country and you know, what What's gonna, are you, you, know, you going to take incoming rounds while you're landing? No. The answer is no. You know, it's a normal landing. You get off the, get off the aircraft. You know, somebody meets you. Officer's this way. Enlisted guys that way. You know. Drew a, your mattress. Tried to sleep for the rest of the night.
0: Do you know where you're heading at this point? You knew
1: the division you were going to. First or third. Uh, third was up north uh, in North I-Corps. First was down around, around the Da Nang area. And I was going to the first division. You didn't even know if you're going to get to the recon battalion. Uh, you went to division. Uh, the next day we, we went to division. We got introduced to the commanding general for some reason, and we were required to sit down. They gave us a big book, rules of engagement. You had to read that, sign that you'd read it and understood it, uh, and then you got sent off to to a, to your unit. And uh, but three of us were lucky enough to, to go to the reconnaissance battalion. The other two, uh, they went off to regular grunt
0: units, infantry units. Uh, so so when you get your assigned to recon, and then what do you, do you guys drive up there? Do you take a helicopter up there? How do you get up to your actual unit? The actual unit, first recon battalion, was located
1: just below and across the street from division headquarters. Oh, so it was easy. So it was, yeah, you, you walk down there. <laughs> and uh, as I said before, we had the one, com- one company, Charlie Company, that wasn't with the battalion in Denang. It was forward-based at Bai. They were the ones that kept up their jump status. And uh, one of my buds who had gone through the recon replacement training, I was slated to go up there because I was single, up to the force reconnaissance company. And He asked if uh, I would mind uh, giving that position to him, if it was okay with the colonel, because he was married and expecting their first kiddo and needed that extra 75 bucks. I was just happy to be there. I said, "Sure, <laughs> take it if that's what you want, you know. That's no big deal." Yeah, so he went up to he went up to the force company in flew by. I stayed there
0: with the battalion in Da Nang. And then, what was the uh, you know what was checking in like? I mean, you're showing up there. You're a new guy. These guys have been in country, and this is something that you know always surprised me about Vietnam is that you guys would rotate. Well, just one individual, individual replacements. Right. right. Yeah. Whereas yeah. for me, all my deployments Plan- were unit. Yeah, the whole unit yeah. is going in, and the whole right. unit's leaving, right. and and so that's got to be a, it's got to be a weird thing showing up as a new guy, and there's a bunch of people that have been there for between, I guess between two days and three hundred and sixty whatever days. <laughs> right. You are. I mean, my my working premise
1: when I got to Vietnam was that anybody who was there a day longer than i would than i had been there it was a day smarter about the situation a day more experienced. and by god i was going to listen to this person you know but uh interesting enough my platoon wasn't even there they were aboard ship with the afloat battalion. battalion you know, we all marine Corps always kept a battalion afloat mm-hmm. uh, off the coast of vietnam they could jump into an operation you know at a moment's notice mm-hmm. give or take and uh, they always had a, a reconnaissance platoon with them and they Apparently he used them pretty much as point for the battalion, so that was not a plum job. But my uh, my platoon, with its outgoing platoon commander, was aboard ship, so I didn't see them for two weeks. I just I had nothing to do except I got tasked to sit on court martials and you know I had unit grades, quarterly grades, or something, something like that, were due. I had to go through all my guys' service record books and give them a grade for their performance over the last quarter without knowing them, without having seen them, uh, and they, this was going to be used for promotions. So I did the best I could. You know, I, I took a, uh, in the service record book uh, how long the guy had been in the corps, in country, had, had he been wounded, uh, what was his level of education. You know, I assigned him a few points, and then you know, like one to ten, and then. Uh, I added everybody's uh, points up and I had a, a grade to give them and recommended the top three for promotion or something like that. It was crazy, but I had to do it. You know. It's what you did.
0: <laughs> we were just complimenting the, the brilliance of the Marine Corps. And then, then you got to tell a story like that. <laughs> then, Okay, so then did you eventually get flown out to the ship to be with them or did they come No, they, back? they came back. They rotated back? They
1: rotated back. They were just filthy dirty. I think they came right from the bush. Uh, and the lieutenant... I got to talk to him for about 10 minutes because he was, like, overdue to, to rotate out of country. So he just, he just wanted to get a shower, get on a uniform, and get back down to Da Nang and what, fly out. What pearls of wisdom did he give you in those 10 minutes? He, he told me uh, who, the, who the best guys in the platoon were and who I think he thought I might want to
0: keep my eye on. And that was about it. No uh, no tactical advice no, on anything. No
1: tactical advice on anything. No. Well it's
0: interesting, you know, I always say that leadership is the most important thing and what he was trying to give you is a heads up on who's like who's the best guys and from a leadership perspective. That's interesting. He just wanted out. I didn't just want to get it out. <laughs> but,
1: but I was in a hooch, yeah, you know, with, with other lieutenants, second first lieutenants who'd been there, you know, anywhere from maybe two months to four months, and they were filling me in on, on, on how, the plate operate, how the deal operated.
0: Was there anything that surprised you that you were heard, hearing from those guys? Anything that you, know, you said, oh, I didn't really expect that?
1: Only thing that really surprised me, I think, uh, once, once I got into recon and got working with them, was that uh, occasionally you had to go out far enough that you weren't anybody's artillery fan. You know, you weren't under, the, rarely were we under the 105 fan and the 155 fan usually. And then there was Army 175s, which uh, were very scary things because uh, the, the, the word was this, they could click out a, they could, you know, bump out a click when they, when they fired these things. They were big. We flew over them one time and I looked at them. And I swear they drooped, you know, 175 artillery base. They were huge. I swear they drooped. Uh, and then, if, of course, if you were out past the 175 fan, you had nothing but air to call on. And that took about 20 minutes to get there. And pilots never really trusted uh, ground officers to, you know, mm-hmm. to bring them in correctly. So they'd always want to fly out an aerial observer, you know, in one of these little spitkit planes, you know, in the back and I don't know what they were, OV-10s, I think, uh, But uh, that was kind of surprising because, but uh, the artillery over there was fantastic, great. You know, uh, they were on call 24-7, obviously. Best thing I ever fired was Marine Corps self-propelled 8-inch. They were like a, looked like a big tank with an 8-inch, you know, fired an 8-inch shell. Boy, they were accurate to the nth degree, unbelievable. But basically, artillery was excellent over there, saved our bacon. Many a time.
0: So, when when you it's been two weeks, your your guys get back, you, you take over as platoon commander. All right. What's your intro meeting with the guys in the platoon? What did you t- what did you say to them? Just
1: kind of introduce myself. Uh, probably told them the same thing I just told you. If you've been here one day longer than I have, uh, and you got a better idea, or or think you do, talk to me. You know, I'm here to listen. You know, I want you all to get back home. Obviously, you know, intact and not tacked in. As we used to say, uh, in fact, the five and a half months I was a platoon commander, we only took one serious casualty, and that was me. And I wouldn't have it any other way. We were extremely lucky, but we were also pretty good. You know, uh, we didn't do dumb things. Uh, there were folks who would uh, like harbor at night near a trail, and hope bad guys would come down it, just so they could try to set up a hasty ambush. No, no, no. <laughs> once, once your troops knew. That uh, you were serious about their welfare, we would have done anything for you, and of course you'd do anything for them. I had twenty, I had twenty-three Marines in my platoon, maybe a couple of corpsmen They rotated in and out according to the will of the uh, Italian aid station. The finest young men ever settled. I kn- assembled. I know most uh, platoon commanders say the same thing, but these kids were average age nineteen, average education ninth grade, you know. But they were top, they were primo. If I'd have told them that uh, we'd been tasked to fly up to Hanoi, drop in with a, with a river raft and paddle up and free the folks out of the Hilton, they would have, they would have, they'd have been right there. They, they, they were just great kids.
0: What was the, what was kind of a normal, well, first of all, what was your first operation that you went on with these guys? Well,
1: first thing that I did was turn out to be a Tet-Tet. 1968 broke on on my first snap-in patrol. I was they they tried to get you on a snap-in patrol or two uh, before you started leading your your guys. So you know you were just you know you're just there is to observe and learn. uh, And your patrol leader might be an E3. In my case, it was an E5 sergeant E5. And uh, we got up this uh, ridge line, and after crossing this path that looked like the I5 of of people paths in Vietnam. It was smooth and uh, we we got up into a bad bunch of brush and some rocks and we were looking up the ridge line and pretty soon four four NVA come toodling down, down this uh, highway. So, four. And then there was eight, then there was 16. Thirty-two. So we stopped and counting. This is
0: your first mission. This is the first. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and is this your platoon? No, I was with You're somebody. I'm just tagging yeah. Along, with I'm someone just else. along. Yeah. And the leader, the platoon leader's an E5. Well, yeah, the patrol leader was an E5. The patrol leader's yeah, a, yeah. an E5. Great young man.
1: Great young man. And uh, so his his rule of thumb was where there's four, there's more. Because when we saw these four guys come out of the, <laughs> the jungle down this ridge line, first thing was, let's go set up an ambush. No, Sergeant said, no, 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 no. Where there's four, there's more. We stopped counting at 400. And by now, we had artillery coming in. We had air on the way. We had an aerial observer up there. We fired artillery all day, all afternoon, into the night, into the evening. We had a puffed magic dragon dropping flares with, with a jets coming in underneath it dropping napalm at night oh it was unbelievable
0: and this was your first time were you doing the call for fire no no
1: it? no I was sergeant sergeant was doing. yeah yeah. I was I was there to learn and uh, to the pucker factor it was like this <laughs> you know guys would go on one or two snap in patrols and never see anything but and they, they welcome might, to Vietnam yeah and they uh, maybe had a little too laws of attitude but this was my welcome to Vietnam and I thought it was great I mean we're dropping artillery on these guys. They're running down the path toward our position. you know. And, and they're, in the, they're in the brush. They're not on the path, but they're in the brush. We had brush. We had rocks on like our north side and our or east side and west side. East side and south side. West and north, we just had brush. And there's, you know, North Vietnamese, they're in the brush coming toward us. They're crying, they're screaming, you know, they're yelling for mom, whatever whatever you do if you're a North Vietnamese soldier. And uh, they were going to run right into us. So the sergeant brings in artillery behind us, real close, you know, danger close. So we got shrapnel flying over our heads. Uh, and, of course, this, this dissuades these bad guys from coming toward us. Uh, also, we had a kid set up when he should have been laying flat like a mushu pancake a piece of shrapnel right into his face and knocked out a few teeth and cut open his lip and everything and the shrapnel was dropping down it burned right through your through your uh, utility shirt burn your skin you just you just endured it uh, it was uh, a was, it was a little hairy yeah. so
0: danger close rounds coming your first night out in vietnam Dang. Oh well. <laughs> Welcome to the war. <laughs> and you guys and you guys maintained your your uh, clandestine position oh, the whole yeah. time? Oh yeah. How many guys were sure out
1: there with you? Uh, probably about 10 11.
0: That was a heavy patrol. Yeah. Wow. All right, so now at how many of those snapping patrols did you do? Two. What S- was the next one like? Second patrol, the next one was was even wasn't that interesting from a
1: a tactical point of view but uh, it was going to be led by a lieutenant who had uh, got a little tanked up at the Oak Club the night before hadn't given the patrol a patrol order uh, so yes. we're down there waiting for on the LZ waiting for, for the insert helicopters to get ready to take us off comes down the hill with the battalion commander lieutenant colonel he uh, comes over to our patrol points to the lieutenant so, Pack, get back up, pack your gear. You're going to the grunts, you know. Boom, he was out. Colonel System, uh, Lance Corporal, System Patroller. You think you guys can run the patrol? Yes, sir, no problem. So we did. It was great. (laughs) But, uh, you know, shit can, this guy is just right there on the spot. And you could do that in in recon. Uh, I had to
0: do it once to one of my guys. Uh, What'd the guy do that raided you firing him on the spot? Um...
1: I had uh, my patrol was like cut in half. I led ha- my platoon was cut in half. I led half of it, you know, anywhere from eight to ten guys, depending on who was not on R and R, who wasn't sick, uh, that sort of thing. And my platoon- I had a platoon sergeant, uh, E6 staff sergeant. He ran the other platoon. We flip flop about uh, about halfway through my tour. When I was about five five and a half months. It- and uh so, you know my the guys that I led we were our codename name was uh, West Orange. We had an excellent uh, reputation in the battalion. They were fast day. They, they felt like they were kind of distant cousins in the platoon, but uh, you know, I got to my pep talk that night with with, with the patrol order, said, so, you know, you guys are I mean you guys are just like West Orange, you know, no different uh, and, you know again. Ninth grade education, same age, you know, same skills, and uh, so I went through my little spiel, and you know, you know my reputation. I'm a platoon commander, you know, administratively your stuff. You know, you know how I operate. I said, Anybody doesn't want to to, to go a fast day now. One kid raises his hand. I said, "Okay, you don't have to go. Pack your gear. Get out of here. Don't. You're not sleeping tonight with these guys." You know, mm. uh, and uh, I don't know what ever happened to him because I never came back from that patrol. You know. But uh, I'm sure it was taken care of.
0: So when you start getting into, what was the kind of typical mission that you guys were doing? Typical
1: mission was, uh, you know, we'd go out on a, a six, seven-day patrol. We just, we're just snooping and pooping. Uh, that's what we called it. Mm-hmm. Uh, finding uh, trails that the enemy would use, would base you guys, camps. Would
0: you guys insert on helicopter or would you guys just foot
1: patrol? No, oh, always helicopter, yeah. Always helicopter. So you
0: pick out a spot and... and Get dropped off. And then what was your what was your SOPs once you guys got inserted? Uh we got off the helicopter. We start hopefully it
1: was where where the the insert LZ was where, you know, uh, the operations officer or the operations shack said it was. Sometimes <laughs> it wasn't there, but you know. That's why, you know, as a patrol leader, I first thing I did when I got on a helicopter was dump my gear, get out my little map Mm -hmm. and insert myself between the pilot and the co-pilot because if you didn't know where you were when you started a patrol Mm -hmm. you weren't going to know where you were for the next six seven days would
0: you guys insert in the daytime in the nighttime in the pre-dawn in the dusk when would you guys go in we'd
1: uh go in in daytime uh we'd be down in the lc waiting you know by by about eight o'clock in the morning birds would come in if they weren't being used for medevacs and stuff on some operation that was going on about mid-morning they'd go up and get a brief from the intelligence folks at first recon we'd be sitting around there and then they'd come back down from their brief we'd uh, pop on the aircraft and off we'd go so like
0: midday you're getting it, midday yeah
1: days. that was pretty much probably about Generally. usual, yeah
0: you hit the and then what you hit the ground and what would you guys do as soon as you hit the ground what was your what was your Standard operating
1: procedures. SOP with the DD and get out of that LZ as fast (laughs) as we can. Nothing says uh, Rangers are are coming in here than a bunch of helicopters coming in to land. Would you
0: be on two two Hueys?
1: No, we'd be on two forty sixes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Army had Hueys, you know, transport troops. Marine Corps didn't. Anytime in the Marine Corps, they probably had about sixty helicopters in Vietnam on any given day. About half of them would be airworthy, so. We had Huey gunships. Hueys, I guess, uh, carry the brass around, but they didn't, we didn't use them as troop transport. We were all 46s.
0: So, big old 46s. Big old you noisy <laughs> 46s. <laughs> and then, would you guys just, like, we always used to do something which was sit, look, and listen. So, like, we would, you know, go two or 300 yards away from yeah, the yeah, LZ, yeah. and then we'd all just stop, stop and then just
1: listen. Get down, yeah, yeah.
0: Pretty much the same way, yeah. And then would you guys have different uh, areas where you were headed to specifically? We did. We had a patrol route that was pre-planned uh, and, a,
1: and an extract point that was pre-planned. Now, patrols rarely went, you know, according to the pre-planning, mm-hmm. which, the, the, you know, the operations shack did. You know, we, we didn't do that. We so were they were
0: still, actually telling you where, where you were yeah, going to where
1: go? Yeah, where we were going to go in at. But They had a recommended patrol route, which uh, we'd stick to if we could. Uh, couldn't all the time and then we get out at this point where they had recommended yeah uh and again sometimes it would work sometimes it wouldn't
0: what was the how often would you guys uh be contacted by the enemy
1: uh you know it wasn't all that frequently because mm-hmm. uh, i you know we did we were good we mm-hmm. we were we snooped and pooped with the best yeah,
0: your purpose of being there was to not be right you scum. know in
1: recon your job wasn't to you know find them fix them and foxtrot them <laughs> you you didn't get online with uh, nine or ten guys or 11 maybe and say charge you know your idea was to gather information uh, but uh, if if the situation was to your advantage uh, you could you could you know if if, if the leader felt a uh, that it was uh, worth the effort, set up an ambush, but normally we'd bring artillery on if we saw groups. And I probably ran 21 patrols and I'd say probably a good three-quarters of them we 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 had fire missions. On, on top of bad guys oh, that, well that's that's
0: a, that's a high percentage well
1: uh, wasn't anything like I think what you went through when you were in Ramadi
0: <laughs> well the, but, there was there were some of my guys in Ramadi that would get contacted uh, a lot there was one uh-huh. one group over in eastern Ramadi and they did I was I was actually briefing a, uh, I was briefing the CG SOTIF commander who's a, the the colonel that was in charge of all special operations and I said you know sort of the my, my group that's you know, six SEALs that are over in Eastern Ramadi, I said, they've been, uh, they've been in enemy contact, 23 straight operations. And I'm not kidding, I didn't plan this for dramatic effect, but my intel officer who's running the tactical operations center comes walking in and says, hey sir, just, just wanna let you know that the guys out east are in contact right now. And I looked at the colonel and I said, make that 24 missions in a row. So yeah, there was definitely some, some hot, Yeah, it was pretty much expected if you were going out in Ramadi that you were going to get in contact by the enemy. And I don't know what the percentage was, but it was it was a vast. It was very rare that my guys would come back and and hadn't hadn't shot their guns, you know, very rare. Yeah, but but 75. But I also what was interesting when I came home from that deployment and would talk to some of the Vietnam guys, depending on the platoon, depending on the SEAL platoon in Vietnam, there's guys that shot their weapons on a, on a six month deployment, shot their weapons three times, four times. Yeah. And there's other platoons in Vietnam where they shot their, platoon, shot their weapons 100% every time. Where they went. Yeah. So it all depended on, and my first deployment to Iraq, I think I shot my gun, we got in like four or five firefights. So really not, not mm-hmm. that big of a deal. And then in Ramadi, the, the number's number just very high for as far as the, the whole task unit getting into getting into big gunfights but g- three quarters of the time you know that's that's a lot of fire missions well but yeah but they weren't gunfights
1: per se you know they'd be you eyeball on somebody or some place or some trail crossing or s- some little mm-hmm. village that you might come across in the middle of nowhere one time we came across a, a cornfield in the middle of the jungle <laughs> i mean it was it wasn't jungle per se because there was no high tree canopy over it, but it was just a field, a clearing in the middle of the jungle with rows of corn. <laughs> but, ooh, this is not your typical <laughs> jungle plant. You know? uh-huh. So we'd uh, get up a little higher ground and we'd, we'd watch to see if anybody come, you know, came in there and settled down. There a few hooches there too.
0: Whereabouts were you guys operating in Vietnam?
1: We were operating north, south, and west of Da Nang. Uh, first reconnaissance... Uh, Battalion's mission was to to to, to patrol the uh, rocket belt around the airport of Da Nang, but uh, that wasn't particularly that far out. So we ended up went a lot further out looking for you know main main line NBA forces mm-hmm. and uh, or or where they where they camped out, the trails they used, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, uh, Gunfights uh, were f- relatively rare, which is a good thing, because uh, you can't see anybody in the jungle anyway. You're typically just firing blind, so that was one of the nice things about the M16. It would put out a lot of fire for you, uh, and uh, that's what you needed over there. You know, you didn't need a heavy bullet necessarily to to knock guys down, but the the uh, 7.62 or 5. Point whatever was just fine. I went a seven point six two. That was the big, heavy one. Yeah, that's button. the M fourteen. Yeah,
0: when you were uh, when you would get these mission taskings, mm-hmm. kind of from above, above uh, from the from the battalion. Right. Would they get? They give it to you. that how long would the planning cycle take for you guys to come up with a plan and do your briefing and all that? About twenty four hours. It wasn't.
1: It wasn't hardcore boilerplate. <laughs> no, nowhere near the detail that uh, I know that you all went through uh, in Ramadi, but. Uh, you know, it was just, we were out six, seven days, back two or three, so I mean, that was a regular schedule. You you knew, I mean, the kids were all ready, the Marines were all ready, you know, their their weapons were clean. Uh, if we had done things that we, we needed to do administratively, like, you know, go down to the gas tent and check all the gas maps and stuff, that had all been done on kind of the 24 hours in between.
0: Were you carrying the radio as the no,
1: officer? I had a, no, I had a, a radio man, primary radio man was right behind me. And I had a, we had a secondary radio man toward the end of the patrol.
0: And you've taken what, ten, seven, eight guys, ten guys? Something like ten that? Ten
1: guys. I, I usually went heavy, yeah.
0: You know. So you got ten guys. How many damn batteries did you have to carry for an eight day patrol? Would you get resupplied? Because were you using the the, the, uh, the 77, the Prick 77 radio? Or no. Were you using one prior to that?
1: We were on prior, I guess. Prick twenty five.
0: The prick twenty five. Yeah. There you go. Not necessarily
1: the best thing, but it was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> line of, as long as you were line of sight. Yeah, yeah.
0: But but I mean, you must have had to carry a lot of batteries for that thing. We didn't.
1: I mean, I guess the radio man had extra batteries, but we didn't typically, you know, go through that much battery.
0: Man, I was a radio man, and it was uh-huh. ridiculous the amount of batteries in the early days because we got much smaller radios later mm-hmm. on. And then how about water? Would you guys just refill canteens on rivers and and whatnot?
1: We would if we could find water, but we went out with eight to ten canteens uh, because you didn't know whether you were going to find water. And if you found it, you didn't know whether it was going to be potable or not. Uh Uh, But uh, we were typically often, I say, more often than not, in the mountainous type area, mountainous being, you know, thousand meters or Mm -hmm. higher. And uh, if we came across running water that, you know, was moving along I thought it was fine safe to drink until I went to this little one-day school put on by a, a, a chief a corpsman who talked about how the, <laughs> the leech larva could be you know expelled into the water and just bubble down with the water yes after that iodine tablets every time we refilled so, never had any problems how about food food we had Korean-era <clears throat> sea rats did you say Korean air it, Korean era. Oh, Korean yeah, era. Yeah, 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 you know, 1954. It would say on there. <laughs> Just plain sea rats in cans. Uh, MRAs were brand new when I was there, and and we occasionally on two patrols, I think that uh, we managed to steal some MRIs from somebody in the army. Fine dining. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah.
1: But see, they used water, so that was it was a it was a they were a better meal, but they would use water, mm-hmm. uh, so it was a you know. Six to one, half a dozen to another.
0: Would, and then would you guys patrol during the day and then
1: lay up at night? That's, that's affirmative, yeah. We'd find the nastiest, meanest vegetation at night and crawl in there and harbor. It'd be in our harbor site.
0: Did uh, Did they use dogs to try and find you?
1: Uh, nope, never saw a dog in Vietnam, or in the jungle anyway. Uh-huh. Apparently, uh, Recon had taken out dogs and handlers in the early days, and uh, the dogs just couldn't handle the mm-hmm. the heat and the the terrain, so the, the handler would end up carrying the dog out. So that was a. You guys another, would
0: you guys bring claymores to set up around we your did. perimeter? We
1: did. We bought claymores, claymores, and sometimes little anti-personnel mines. Okay. Uh, which sounded like a great idea until the next morning when the, the guy who'd put them out got to go retrieve them. Yeah, you got to go retrieve them. Got maybe you had six mines out and he came back with five.
2: Oh,
1: so, so we would be moving out in the opposite direction. <laughs> Claymore was a good weapon.
0: And so you, it sounds like your, your, um, your op tempo was like, go on a patrol. You're out there for six, seven days. Late. You come back, you're, you rest, you refit, you spend three, four days in camp, something like that. Two or three, maybe. Two or yeah, three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a pretty pretty quick turnaround you
1: know you didn't have time to settle in and get comfortable anywhere <laughs> and then it's back out were you guys just skinny as could be we were <laughs> yeah i went over there weighing 150 pounds 155 pounds which is my weight at the naval academy came back i was 123 when i got back but part of that was the previous 19 days or something after i was shot till i got back in the states yeah. uh, i didn't eat too much you know i was being fed for one thing and most of the time it was red jello and that wasn't real appealing i, I couldn't look at red
0: jello for about five years after that <laughs> did you uh did you guys have any night vision at all like a starlight scope yeah we had fixed positions
1: that we would go to for sometimes longer as much as two weeks and they were essentially high points like a a hill, 800 meter high hill, and they'd have a permanent radio. We have a permanent radio relay station on there, and and patrols would just rotate there every couple of weeks to provide security for that guy, because he was up there for like three plus months, and uh, on those we would take we had starlight, yeah, mm. and we'd watch the valleys and stuff below us, uh, but uh, never it, never used them that much. No,
0: you know, going out in the field that much. You guys must have really been, I mean, you guys must have been really good and really efficient out in the field after doing a field op after field op after field op for six, seven, eight days every time. Did you feel like you guys were kind of part of the jungle at that point? Never, never felt really part of the
1: jungle, but it certainly got more uh, comfortable in it. Uh, one thing that you always had to be very careful about in, in the work that uh, Recon did was heat casualties. Mm -hmm. You know, you took a serious heat casualty, that's an emergency medevac, which is, again, you know, announcing to the whole world that there's Marines out here and one of them, you know, down with a heat casualty. As a consequence, the days we were back in the area, uh, First Platoon Delta Company PT'd Mm -hmm. every day. People thought we were crazy. I took my heat casualties on Freedom Hill Road, you know, running two and a half miles down, two and a half miles back, including myself, you know, stopping to barf. never had a heat casualty in the five and a half months I went patrol, something I was very proud of. Uh,
0: yeah, you got to carry enough water for that, though. Really, right? You well, know, you just had to ration yourself, you know, and, and each individual was... So you said eight canteens, you're bringing eight canteens eight to 10 of water. Eight canteens of water, you bet. And that's going to last you eight days? Six or seven. Yeah. Six or seven. Unless days. we got
1: extended, which was not unheard of. You know, the Marine Corps helicopters would be, you know, some operation would start while you were on patrol. They'd be tasked for medevacs, and you couldn't get out the day you were supposed to. You just you prayed, I guess, would be the nice thing to say that you got out the next day. Because by then your food was exhausted, your water was either gone or real short. Yeah,
0: we used to have a lot. We used to have heat casualties in training out mm-hmm. here in, in California, oh, sure, sure. out in the Imperial Valley, where it's 120 degrees. Mm-hmm. And it's tough, and like you said, a guy can go from he's fine to all of a sudden he's like a legitimate, like a legitimate you gotta get casualty. A yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, let's go to July Fourth, nineteen sixty-eight. What was what was um, going into that operation? What was the what was the overall operation that you guys were looking to do?
1: We were looking to find uh, an old LZ uh, in a place called Charlie Ridge. You said you had. Uh, neighborhoods and areas that were hotter than others, in Ramadi. We had the same thing, of course, in Vietnam. You know, some places were known as hot spots. You'd almost guaranteed, you know, somebody was going to shoot a few rounds at you coming in or going out. If they didn't find you during the, or you didn't find them during your patrol. But uh, we were supposed to flip flop. You know, we'd go in, and another team would come out on the top of this mountain. And the team had gotten lost. Uh, they didn't know where they were. So they finally somehow, you know, scraped their Sierra together. And, and we went out and we flip-flopped with them. But we were way far away from this you know, They were three or 4,000 meters away from this uh, mountaintop where we were supposed to flip-flop with another team. So I really pushed the patrol to find it. I thought, this place was really hard to find If These guys couldn't find it. No, no, they just were lost. But we found that thing on the second day. An old, old fire base on the top of this mountain, you know, like three years of sea rats on the side of the mountain because we had NVA walking trail below us. They'd stop and have lunch there, <laughs> eat old seas. I, ham and lima beans, I think, su- supplied half the NVA in Vietnam because I Marines just always pitched those things. Nobody ate. We call them ham and mothers. <laughs> Nobody ate them. But uh, so we had a flip-flop. So I didn't want to get too far away from this LZ because I want another LZ within, you know, three, four clicks. So we were going to, you know, we harbored that night, moved off into the jungle outside the LZ. Harbored that night, had some big rocks around us. Thought we were in a good position. And at night I would pre-plot fires, you know, artillery Mm -hmm. uh, targets north, south, east, west around our position in case you had to call them in the middle of the night. You know, you didn't have to figure out what the what's our six you know numbers here <laughs> no these, these targets were already plotted in so we woke up the next morning and we were just going to kind of lay low all day long in that area it wasn't something you really wanted to do but uh you know since we were scheduled to flip-flop and, and battalion really wanted us to do that because it hadn't worked you know when we had gone in we weren't we should have gone in where we were going out uh but they want, so they wanted to flip-flop, so I said, but we're just going to lay low for it this day and then we'll be out of here the next morning. Well, that morning, I guess some, you know, 12-man NVA recon patrol walked uh, close aboard or came by close aboard. Uh, so we never heard them. Just, they either saw a flash of motion, must have been, we were eating breakfast, uh, or they heard us, which I don't think they did because we were super quiet. But all of a sudden, it just, you know, all this automatic fire opened up, and fortunately, it was over our heads, you know, because that's pretty typical happen in the jungle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you shoot high. But uh, I had a big rock kind of behind me, so I'm getting guys uh, maneuvered around, starting to call the artillery in. When uh, a bullet apparently hits the rock behind me, and comes back, hits me in the head from behind, goes forward, um, boom, I'm down, and uh, I'm almost history. <laughs> uh, next thing I know, my uh, Corman is doing a pat down on me. Apparently the bullet had gone through my floppy cover and didn't knock it off. And it wasn't until he saw blood starting to run down the side of my face that he realized that the wound was up here but, because there was nothing visible. So he's doing a pat down and I knew what that meant. I knew I'd been shot and I knew he didn't know where it was. But uh, I never did figure out it was in my head or in the head. I concluded sometime that morning because we, we were on the ground for about another four hours before they tried to get us out uh, that I had been bitten by a centipede they had some nasty centipedes over there <laughs> whose venom apparently attacked your central nervous system so that was my working theory that morning was that I had been bitten by a centipede me off. You know. How long were you unconscious for after you got hit? I was unconscious just for a few seconds because you know, I, one minute I'm kneeling, I'm a lean, green, mean fighting machine. The next moment I'm laying down, I'm a lean, mean, green stalk of broccoli. How much time?
0: How much? <laughs> how much time had passed between the uh, the initial fire, incoming fire, and you getting hit?
1: It was really just a matter, of maybe of three to five minutes. Okay. You know, I'm trying to get guys positioned. In recon, we did not want to fire back. If somebody, you know, started firing at you, they didn't really know where you were, especially with this fire going high. And the last thing you wanted to do really was fire back, because "Ah, now we know where they are, and then they, you know. So the deal was not to fire back. Just bring in supporting arms as quick as you could. Uh, But eventually, of course, the guys started to fire back because it was just a little too hot.
0: And I just thought of this, I'm guessing you guys wouldn't carry a like a heavy machine gun with you, like an M60 or something.
1: No, we didn't. Too heavy, and and then we had two two more guys tasked with ammunition, mm-hmm. and you can't really you know get one of those things set up quickly, you know, in the jungle. But occasionally we did. Occasionally, the, you know, the, the the warning order that I would get from battalion would say, you know, you're taking an M60 on this patrol because we've had uh, reports of. X, Y, and Z in this area, and you might need it. So great. Obviously, somebody had to volunteer to do that, and my littlest guy, his nickname was Mouse, (laughs) he would always volunteer to carry the M60. Great kid, great kid. Uh, Never really had to use it uh, in the jungle, which was good, but occasionally we carried it.
0: So here you are, you're five minutes into this gunfight, you get hit, you're unconscious for a a very short period of time, Mm -hmm. and then you come back to. And how do you feel when you come back? Uh, again, didn't know what had happened.
1: Again, I th- my first thought was the centipede thing. But uh, sounds were muffled. Color was gone. Uh, things were moving in black, slowly in black and white around me, and sounds were very muffled. Uh, by now, we, the artillery was starting to come in. Uh, we had a brand-new second lieutenant with us. He was on his first snap-in patrol. He apparently assumed command, along with my experienced corporal, who was my— normally was the patrol leader for this patrol. Uh, and together they, uh, they, they, they managed the situation. And uh, we got everybody out. I was the only one wounded. Take that back. Uh, crew chief on, on the helicopter that picked us up was wounded. Uh, he was on a 50 caliber and got hit in the hand. Uh, but uh, we were the only two wounded. I was the only guy on my patrol wounded. Uh, and the corpsman, outstanding second class uh, hospitalman. He kept me alive for the next four hours until they could get me in to today.
0: How bad were you bleeding?
1: Apparently it bled out. Uh, there's, a, there's a cavity down the center of your head called the superior sagittal sinus. It's like an upside-down triangle, <coughs> and it drains blood, your brain, and that was nicked by the bullet. It was just close enough to midline to nick the superior sagittal sinus. And I can remember my karma just kept putting battle, battle dressing after battle dressing on my head. <sighs> It ruined my whole day, needless to say.
3: Were, were you like passing back out and then waking back up?
1: I was. That? I was. I remember I, I knew I could hear the helicopter coming in, and I knew we were about to break out of the jungle to run to the Z, that the helicopter was coming in, that we had been on the day before. So I took all the strength I could about to open my eyes and look up, and all I saw were tracers converging kind of over us from all points of the compass. Damn, this is serious, you know.
0: uh, I got got some information that that, uh, your kids gathered up. And one of them them was a note from uh, Captain Frederick Rick J. Wilson III. And he he wrote this little kind of description of what happened. He says, I was the pilot of the CH-46 YT-13 tac MMH-164 that rescued your team. What you couldn't know was that a lot of people, including your recon team, were responsible for getting you to the hospital. I vividly remember the mission because my crew chief was wounded. That's the guy you just talked about. He, like you, also survived and prospered. He and I received silver stars for our actions that day. You tend to remember things like that. I flew 928 missions in Vietnam, and that one was my hairiest. I first heard that your team was in trouble and you were wounded when I was landing at Da Nang Hospital with another medevac. Because of your head injuries, I was able to get a corpsman at the hospital before I headed out for the rescue. It turned out to be the corpsman Terry Daly was from my hometown of Wakefield, Rhode Island. I found this out 20 years later when Terry's wife showed up at my sister's house with an old copy of Stars and Stripes that covered the mission. Your team evidently ran into an NVA base camp that no one knew was there and was, and was greatly outnumbered. Because of your wounds and the combat situation, an extraction was requested and I was the closest to the action. The problem soon became apparent that the team needed to move about 200 yards to an old bomb crater where I could land. I called for gunship support and some fast movers. What I got was four flights of Phantoms dropping bombs pretty close to the team and four Huey gunships. I was circling overhead for about an hour before the team got to the only feasible landing zone on the ridge. They did a good job suppressing fire until I was landing. Fortunately, the bomb crater also protected me somewhat and we were getting we were we were able to get everyone on board. I was a little short on fuel, but that worked in my favor because I was also about two thousand pounds over gross, according to my co-pilot, who was wondering if we could lift off. In the meantime, your team and my gunner were engaged in a firefight. Your team knocked out all the windows on my bird, but I didn't object because they were covering my butt. We managed to take off and took a few hits out on the way. But Thanks to the Hueys escorting me, I was able to dive off the ridge and get out of range. Long story short, we were able to get everyone to the hospital, and the NVA got a beating. So he had to like just take off and just fly over this ridge, right? As yeah, apparently
1: he just kind of dove off the ridge and you know gain <laughs> speed, came back up. <laughs> I heard that this that this thing was so riddled with bullets, this, this helicopter was that. The Marine Corps helicopter facility was across this highway from the hospital in Da Nang. They wouldn't fly it over there. They'd call for a tug to, 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 to
0: tow it over there. I think we're going to try to put that thing back in the air that day. Oh, man. Uh, he continues on. And this was a nice—I'm I'm, I'm taking, like, bits of this from a nice letter that he wrote. But he yeah. says, I understand that you count— that day as, as an alive day, which is a very good thing to celebrate. I was probably one of the few Marines who enjoyed their tour in Vietnam pri- primarily because I was saving lives and rescuing recon teams. I also loved the flying since they would never let you fly like that back in the, in the States. States. <laughs> one of the best things to come out of Vietnam was the improvement of medical care, your proof. You are proof of that as the survival rates from Afghan- as are the survival rates from Iraq and Afghanistan. Hope you have a wonder. Wonderful 50th rebirthday. Happy birthday, Marine. And that, once again, that's Captain Frederick Rick J. Wilson III. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he was the command pilot that day,
1: and the bird that pulled me and the team out saved all our lives.
0: No question about it. We did, uh, did, were you guys under the threat of being overrun at some point soon? I tell you the truth, uh, Jocko, I have no idea,
1: really. <laughs> My uh, memory of that day was pretty sketchy.
0: I
3: I talked to him on the phone uh, last year, and he said they had to circle overhead for an hour because they just couldn't set it down. There's no possible way, and they estimated probably 200 NBA on the ground, and that's part of the reason why they weren't able to fly it back to squadron because small arms fire through rotor blades.
1: You know, as an infantry officer, I always felt very comfortable on the ground and very exposed on a helicopter. I just figured those were things were flying magnets that made a lot of noise. You know, <laughs> and but of course the, the aviators felt just the other way. They were felt safe in their birds and were never wanted to be on the ground. <laughs> never.
0: I, I I feel the exact same thing as you. I don't. I didn't ever liked any sort of machine. I didn't. I didn't like any of them. I wanted to just be on my feet exactly you know so and and I mean, yeah that feeling that you have a helicopter where you're up flying and all you see is all you all i see when i'm flying in a helicopter is threats mm-hmm. you, you know and you can't even come close to cover them all at least on the ground i can i can cover some of the threats when you're in an aircraft it's like you know, i'm a, i'm waiting to get shot that's down right. that's what it feels like to me uh when do you when do you remember coming to or when do you remember what they do with you once you got in the hospital do you remember much of that no, I uh, I remember the uh,
1: remember the helicopter landing because uh, my head bounced on the middle. <laughs> i was like, damn, couldn't I put something underneath my head? And I remember them picking me up and putting me on a stretcher because they grabbed my belt and picked picked up my middle, and it felt thing like it felt like a grog just going right through me. Uh, I faintly remember the sound of hearing this guy that sounded like he was on the other side of a football field saying, negative vitals, negative vitals, negative vitals. And then the next thing, I felt this crush on my chest. And I thought, that's okay, because, you know, they're getting the heart back up, (laughs) checking, you know. Oh, so they were, like, doing CPR. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was apparently resuscitated three times just after the helicopter uh, landed at the NSA, the hospital, but my... Corman had been straddling me the whole time in a helicopter and was pushing on the heart to keep keep blood flowing. And it was, it was, a, it was a, not my best day, but you know, Ugh. hey, well, I'm here talking about it, so yeah, that, no, we'll, uh, we'll take it. That makes a huge <laughs> difference, believe me. Because there's no reason I should be. When I left Bethesda after a year, my attending physician was the chief of neurosurgery, and he called me in his office and said, "Hey Ike, you know, I said I wish that." Medicine could take uh, credit for this, but nah, he said, we can't. He says, I don't know. What, it's whatever you want to call it, you know, karma, luck, God, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I wish it was medicine, but it wasn't. So I figured he was a pretty leading expert on head injuries.
0: How long did, so you, you, get, you get to the hospital and you're there. I, I, at some point, they must have gotten you stabilized.
1: They must have, yeah. As I understood at the... Uh, the chief neurosurgeon from the hospital ship just happened to be there that day like giving an in-service or something like that and uh, boom they were on me like uh, flies on stink uh, I just remember waking up uh, being extremely cold and hearing a baby cry cry and cry and cry and I said this can't be right <laughs> maybe I'm not here <laughs> You know, but sure enough it turned out there was a a told me later, you know, a couple days later, that there was a baby that had been burned, you know, due to U.S. force action. Who was, you know, this was like a ward that was a, a intensive care ward, uh, apparently. And there was a baby in there with a couple of mama signs and the baby did cry almost all the time. And that's what I remember. My troops came to say goodbye. Uh, Twenty-two of them. They let them in in groups of two. Uh, all I could do was cry i just I, I didn't have words for them, you know, other than to say things like keep your head down and stuff like that cuz i knew by then that i'd had a head injury and i knew it just slowly dawned on me no one told me you know that uh, this left side was paralyzed along with my right leg no one told me that it just came to me over time when i would try to do something the only way i could get attention was i had this perfect left paralysis down the side of my face so i, I sort of talk like that i'd raise my hand they, they tied it down to the bed rails because that's all the IVs oh. were in the right arm. Well, <laughs> I was I was helpless. I I was I've never been so miserable as that moment when they
0: tied that arm down. And it's just the trauma to your brain that had caused you to be paralyzed in your left arm and and was your left side of your body? Left
1: side of my body and the right leg. It was a the bullet had blown away about a 3 by 7 centimeter defect in my skull that it, it had had uh, Penetrated the meninges, nicked the uh, parietal lobe and the frontal lobes, and tore the superior sagittal sinus. So, that's that's a wound that's incompatible with life as we know it. But uh, here I am telling you about it. So, uh,
0: you know, one of your one of your guys. Once again, your 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 kids did an awesome job getting gathering some uh, information. One of your guys, Robert Wood Daly Baird, mm-hmm. the third. Yep. You're a third too. I'm second. Okay, I I, I thought for some reason he says he said, he thought that you were third, but yeah, so he's the third. He was a lance corporal in first platoon, Delta Company, First Recon Battalion, and he, he talks about and he, he you know, he starts off kind of telling what it was like for him to meet you and how impressed he was with you as a leader and and actually felt what you talked about earlier. It's like you know that he could tell that you you, you cared about the troops. And then it gets to this point where he's coming, they're, they're coming to that this journey to, to, to say goodbye to you. And so here's what uh, Robert Wood, Daily Baird Third says. He says, then that afternoon, the team made a solemn journey to the Naval Hospital to see the lieutenant. Everyone watched the scenery without really seeing it as we rode along in a six-by truck. We were too worried about him. We arrived and went to Neuro Ward Bravo II. We could only see them two at a time, and since I was new, I was last. I waited. When my teammates came out, they looked pale. Then it was my turn. I was nervous. I entered the ward. It was lengthy with empty racks here at the near end. Each rack was covered with a crisp white sheet ready for its next visitor. On a long shelf on the right, there were plastic models of planes, ships, and cars that the patients had made. I walked onward. One of the healthier men was putting together a model plane. On the left was an ancient papasan with white hair. His beard, a dirty gray, contrasted with his hospital tunic. A nurse with an angelic voice attracted my attention. I noticed her face, firm with conviction, and wondered how how she could work in such a tragic place. She was feeding a baby. Seeing that struck me deeply. The baby was burned over 70% of its body. I pressed onward, but paused wondering what I should say. Patients filled the beds at this end of the ward. Unhealed wounds, burns, scars, and vacant stares stabbed out at me. Half of a face there. No eyes and no arm legs here. Bodies covered with gauze, seemingly mummified. The morbid display made me realize how truly bad war is, but the worst was yet to come. I passed Harry Mundorf and Rudy Seville. They were coming out. Somehow they didn't look the same as when I'd seen them a short time ago. There he was in the last rack on the left. He lay on his right side and glanced up with glazed eyes when I approached. A turban of bandaged, bandages covered his head. His pale face showed no emotion except sadness and his eyes were red from crying. All the time we talked, he stared at the airborne parachute wings on my chest as if they were something he wanted very badly. He had told me when I had first joined the platoon that he hadn't gone to jump school yet and that he was looking forward to it. He started by saying, hello, Baird, how you doing? I said, good afternoon, sir, I'm fine. His voice was weak like a child who was afraid. At times I could barely hear him. He added again to the conversation by thanking all of us and I replied, that it had been the the least we could do. Then I asked him if he'd be back at recon in three months or so. A tear came to his eye and he said he would never be coming back. You see, he said, my legs are paralyzed. I choked up and my skin crawled and I was unable to speak. A silence cold and heavy, a silence cold and heavy prevailed. Finally, he broke the silence saying, Baird, you're a big man and there's something I want you to do. Keep your head down there. Keep your head down when you're out in the bush. This statement hit me and grabbed at my heart, and I screamed inside myself deep, deep down somewhere that I never knew existed. I promised him that I would would, and bid him my fondest farewell, turned, and walked away. I wanted to run from him, from them, from the whole world. I wanted to run past those helpless men in those metal beds, out to the street, and far, far away. But I kept my control and walked at a brisk pace. The echoes of that scream resounded inside me again and again, threatening to tear me apart. Suddenly the anguish melted away as I stepped out into the brutal, tropic sun. But the feeling that I had still ran like hot lava through my veins. The ride back home was the same. No one looked at the scenery or at each other nor talked with anyone. Each was involved with their own memories of Second Lieutenant Charles Robert Eisenbach II. He was a man with such brilliant mind and exuberance to be alive. Now he lay in a hospital suffering a far worse fate to him than death. His once healthy body was now frail and flimsy like a person who had always been an invalid. Left only was his mind and he had too much time to think and reflect upon what had happened and what was going to happen. It was a great strain and shock to see him. With hope he will work his way back because he does have guts and what's interesting about that that's a that's a heavy you know rendering of what happened but that's actually from his personal journal that he kept while he was in vietnam those are the thoughts of uh whatever probably a 20 year old kid seeing this unfold yeah well needless to
1: say lancar uh, Baird, uh, i think he had a year of college he was kind of a platoon spokesman he became a writer and a poet uh so he, uh, you know, he obviously had a great command of the English language, and uh, maybe saw some things or invented some things that weren't necessarily there. But that was his reality, and that's fine. Fine with me. I can't can't argue with it. <laughs> Nothing he said in there I don't think was untrue. Uh, I was what we call a hurting gator. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, I remember they they, they told me that uh, I was going to a, an army hospital in, uh, in Japan. Well, only thing I knew was that Marines, when they got wounded in Vietnam, they went to a naval hospital in Yokohama. So I just pissed a, a little hissy fit and said, why are you sending me to an army hospital? Not knowing that this army hospital in uh, Camp Drake outside of Tachikawa Air Force Base in Japan was where all head injuries went. That was their specialty was head, in, head injuries. Uh, so they, they finally got a doc in there to calm me down and, and tell me how this, this was the place I needed to be. And uh, one hospital was just as good as another, which, of course, you don't believe when, <laughs> when it's not your, your services hospital. But, hey, you know, I was a 23-year-old kiddo, and, uh, you know, I had been in naval hospitals before. and had, had always gotten great care, and that's what I was expecting. And it turned out uh, this uh, our general support hospital that uh, I ended up at was first-rate I was there for like ten days before I was uh, stable enough to to make the plane trip back home,
0: and uh, interesting place. So, for so ten days you're you're there. Are they doing any? Are they doing surgeries on you, or are they just trying to let you heal up? Uh,
1: they're just kind of letting me heal up, and they've started physical therapy on me. I had tremendous spasms in both my legs and my and my left arm, so they had physical therapy make some braces that they put. On my feet, and they made a hand brace for me with my thumb sticking out like this. And when my arm would spasm, this thing would come and beat me in the eye. <laughs> and I have to hold this arm down. I was miserable. There was a, just a young kid to my to to my right who would lost an eye. He was an Air Force uh, airman and had lost an eye in Danang, and that was his, that was his problem. That was his major problem. And he had been tasked to be my feeder and my smoker. You know, I was a smoker then. And, and I would just crave a camel, and he'd have to be around to to, to handle it because I couldn't deal with it. But uh, terrific kid, and it's, and they really they took uh, excellent care of me in this hospital, just like they did everybody else.
0: So the the spasms in your arms and legs, which we were all, admittedly, all of us just laughed when you told that story, right, which is right. pretty disturbing. But uh, that had to be a little bit of a good sign because some kind of spasm means that there's some nerve uh signal getting there well
1: exactly and and what it was was a uh screwed up signal you know it was it wasn't you know telling the thing to do anything useful it was just you know telling these uh, muscles to fire you know again from the from the damaged area in my brain as i understand it you know looking back on it
0: but that was your was your mindset that you're going now from hey i mean when you said you were paralyzed when you initially got hit. And now, you know, you can't move your leg. You can't move either one of your legs or your left arm. Right, right. But, and did you, in your mind, did you think, okay, I might be, this might be it. You know, I might be paralyzed like this forever.
1: Well, of course, you don't know what the future holds. I mean, none, none of us do, but uh, the, the better you become, the more aware you become of your limitations. And yeah, you start to think, uh, you know, how long is this going to last? Is this forever? What am I going to do for the rest of my life? You know? Uh, you know you're not going to be a marine uh, because you you know' we don't have a job description of marines through you know in wheelchairs or something like that. but uh, you know, the one saving grace I always thought was well I'm single, at least there's not you know a wife involved and a child on the way like most of my contemporaries had uh, but the, uh, conversely, the guys who were. You know, as I found out later on at Bethesda, the guys who were married felt it was much better to be married because you had this, you know, direct support system that you were coming back into, and, you know, you knew this woman was going to be there. They all—they weren't, of course, always. Uh, you know, things don't last a lot of times when you get big changes like that mm-hmm. in your life, unfortunately. But uh, the guys who were married thought it would be much better to be married, and those of us who were single thought it was much better to be single. But, uh, sure, you say, you know... That's the first question out of your your mind is when you get to your final destination, which for me was Bethesda Naval Hospital. Was Doc, how long am I going to be here? Mm -hmm. Well, they don't have any idea. They don't know how your recovery is going to unwind. So finally, my doctor said to me, hey, you could be here for two years, and I can't guarantee that you'll walk out even then. I thought to myself, well, damn, he doesn't know who he's dealing with. My plan, you know, I got shot on the 4th of July. My plan was to be back in Vietnam by Christmas with my guys. You know, that didn't work out, but that was my plan. Uh-huh. And, and I worked hard to make it happen. It didn't happen. You know, a year later, I walked out of there under my own power with a leg brace and a cane and got on an ambulance and was driven down the road in 95 to, to the VA hospital in Richmond, Virginia, where I stayed another four months. But uh, you don't know what's going to happen. You're just... Uh, it's a it's it's a slowly evolving, you know, kind of mental process you go through. You you hit a point I I did and I know other guys did too because we talk about this. Well, you'd say, "Why me?" you know. "Why why why me, God? Why did this happen to me?" And I don't know if other guys got their got an answer to that question, but I did. I over time this answer evolved, you know, and the answer was why not you, Eisenbach? Who are you? You're no better than anybody else I put down that little blue planet. But you're no worse either. Uh, so you're just gonna have to go with the punches. And that's the answer. Why not you? You're no better, no worse than anybody else. I mean, that's a little hard, for, I think, for some people to stomach, but that was the answer I got. And uh, you know, it's, it served its purpose, okay why not me this is it this is the way it is i guess i'm i i just have to take it a day at a time and, and do my best to get better and, and see where i end up and, and when i get to that point uh you know i'll i'll, I'll make decisions about what i'm going to do for the future which i you know i did Now i had a lot of vocational counseling from the va when i got flushed you know out, out of the service and out of the va system uh, i got a lot of Like I said, vocational counseling, I got interest tests that I take, you know, because the question now is, okay, what am I gonna do for the rest of my life? Well, not surprisingly, I scored highest on military officer. (laughs) Hoorah. Uh, Gee, I just was one of those a couple of months ago. Second highest was FBI agent. Oh, that sounds good, but again, they don't have job descriptions for guys who limp, you know. Uh, And finally, I scored third on teacher. I said, well, that's interesting. And that evolved into thinking about becoming a therapist, uh, and specifically a speech therapist. I had a speech defect uh, that I just kind of overcame myself uh, at Bethesda by slowing down and trying to think about what I was going to say before I said it. Uh, And I got the nickname Spock because my speech became very deliberate. But when I was just spontaneous, apparently, and I never heard this, but my roommate would say, I said, what? I said, what? He said, what was with that language? I said, what language? You know, we maybe had some visitors, a couple of gals from people I knew who were overseas in Vietnam. He said, it was ter- It was filthy. I'd say, really? <laughs> I never heard it. And he said, yeah. So I, I started to slow down myself and try to think about what I would say. But speech therapists kind of stuck in my mind after this vocational counseling that i got and that's eventually what i became was a speech language pathologist
0: so uh, when he's saying your speech was filthy you mean that you were like swearing oh yeah yeah oh. <laughs>
1: you know, yeah just using every filthy word <laughs>
0: like like a what's that tourette syndrome is that what it's called uh yeah well like tourette syndrome I, scenario and i
2: i had no
1: idea that i was doing that i didn't hear it
2: because <laughs> what you just did it naturally like that's how you talked kind of thing or
1: like why didn't you remember it uh, no, it wasn't how I normally would speak. It was just it would just come out in totally the in a, totally inappropriate situations. You know, not amongst the guys, but uh, you know, amongst visitors. Sure. You know,
0: and uh, like I said, I didn't know what was going on. But uh, you I, uh, <clears throat> you kind of glanced over the fact that that you know you got the feedback hey you can't you can't stay in the marine corps anymore and you it sounds like you you figured that out yourself but at some point that's that's got to turn into a a harsh reality where that's what you wanted to do you're in vietnam you're a platoon commander you got the best guys in the world and all of a sudden in one day it's gone
1: it's right it's gone and you don't know what's going to replace it but yeah eventually you get before a physical evaluation board and what i had hoped for because most of most of my roommates and most of the guys there I knew that had Marines, they had orthopedic industries. You know, they'd gotten stitched up with a machine gun in their legs or whatever. They got put on the temporary disabled retired list. That allowed you five years to regain your ability uh, and, and if you could, you, you, you would get a chance to go back into the Marine Corps. Uh, on the other hand, if you got better, the VA could uh, drop your disability rating down. So it was kind of a double-edged sword. Most guys just wanted to get out, but uh, for guys like me, that they call lifers, because I wanted to, I wanted a career in it, and I argued that I could fly any desk. Well, that that was fine, but that wasn't gonna that wasn't that wasn't gonna fly. <laughs> I was gonna be retired, but as long as I was on the TDRL, the Temporary Disabled Retired List, I thought, well, I got a chance, but. I get a, I'm at the VA hospital now, I've, I've been through my physical evaluation board, they've uh, asked me questions, and I've got a transcript of it, my doctor submitted statements and stuff like that. And they said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get you on the TDRO, and I said great, because I'd have five years to work myself back in the Corps. Came through, my orders for retirement orders came through one day when I was in the VA hospital, permanent disabled, retired no chance of ever getting back. Boy, I was this beyond just talking about it. i was on the phone to the secretary of the navy's office uh which i got through to and i had some nice older woman right there who obviously had heard this story before you know i was promised the TDRL, but I've, here i've been permanently retired she said well lieutenant you've got to understand that you know we, we've done this a few times before and uh, we kind of know the, the the history of these kinds of injuries and uh, your board did recommend the permanent retired, disabled, list, not the temporary. So you know we have to go with what they say, and of course they were right. But again, you know I, I was you know, I'm, by now I'm old man at 24, right, and I'm being retired.
0: Excuse me, that didn't. That's not the plan. <laughs> but uh, that's how it all worked. How long did it take you to realize? How long did it take you to accept that? So you you kind of got through the, the why me, why not right, me? Right, right. How did you how long did it take you to get through this fact that okay now the Marine Corps, your your sacred Marine Corps, has uh has made this decision? You know, I'm still thinking about that, Jacko, <laughs> to tell you the truth.
1: So fifty odd years. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, I'm still now i got a new why me questionnaire. But no, I I I adjusted. Uh I went down to graduate school, got a master's degree in, in, a, in the speech department at the University of Florida, and uh, they weren't quite sure uh, what had walked through the door when <laughs> apparently when I arrived, I wanted to know where the coffee mess was, uh, and they are all looking at me like the what? And, well, you know, the place where you get you just drop in, in the morning, get a cup of coffee, pay a dime or whatever. Well, we don't have anything like that. Well, we're going to get one. We do now. We do now. That's right. And uh, most of my classes were on the third floor of this building, which had an elevator that went up to the third floor, but it didn't work, hadn't worked in years. And so I went to my advisor, I said, look, this three flights of stairs has killed me two and three times a day, you know, we've got to get that elevator working. I said, oh, can't do it, like, no way, it hasn't worked since I've been here, the prof said. I said, well, we'll see about that. He said, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I'm going I'm to go talk to the president. The president? What president? The president of the university. I said, you can't do that. I said, really? <laughs> Watch me. So I did. Uh, he wasn't there, but his his like chief of staff was, mm-hmm. who happened to be a guy who had kind of a, an arm injury from World War II. And uh, he said, oh, it can't be repaired, can it? I said, well, that's what they're telling me, sir. He said, I'll take care of it. Well, the next day it was working just fine and worked for the next three years
0: during <laughs> my master's program. Didn't have a down day. <laughs> How uh, we kind of we kind of jumped over this part. How long were you in Bethesda for total? I was in Bethesda for a little over twelve months, and and throughout that time, you know, when you showed up, when you got wounded, you couldn't move your right. your okay. legs or arm. What was the progression like getting you back to? To, you know, the, the, the best state that I you could got be. to? Yeah.
1: Well, it was uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, you know, once a day, which I decided if once a day was good, twice might be better. <laughs> so I argued for that and pretty soon I got that. Uh, by November, my right leg had started to get remarkably better. My left leg uh, still wasn't real useful, but uh, you put a brace on it and and I could by November I was walking. Now granted, I had a uh, a crutch on one side on the right side a loft strand crutch you know the metal things mm-hmm. we called polio crutches back then but I don't know what they're I think I call them loft strand crutches because that's the guy who invented and a corman on my left side but I was walking you know mm-hmm. and of course I went back to I, I finally dropped the corman and and went to two loft strand crutches dropped the right the left one after a while back to the right one then dropped that to a cane and a leg brace on my left and, and I did fine for about 42 years that way about eight years ago my right leg decided to take an early retirement on me and so I had to start wearing a brace on that leg and and I was falling too much so they put me into a to an electric wheelchair which is what I scoot around the house and around town in Um, that uh, scooter over there is what it flies my my wheelchair doesn't fly it's 247 pounds and it it doesn't fly but that flies that breaks down into four or five parts of my wife can do it usually by our own. Of course, this weekend we've had the kids to help her. Just throw it in the back of a
0: I I know some of the notes, <clears throat> speaking of you falling down, some of the notes had you uh, wearing a football helmet while you were down there. It sounded like that made a, quite an impact on some of the places that you'd visit with your football helmet on. And
1: <laughs> Well, you know, I was falling. When I started to you know, walk independently uh, at the hospital, you know, I had a left foot drop, which means the brace was supposed to bring it up, so it clears all the little obstacles that are you don't ever pay attention to when you've got two good feet. But I would fall into elevators because they wouldn't be exactly aligned, and I'd fall into everybody in there. So eventually I started to, they, get, they say, you need a football helmet
0: to see. Yeah, because you got the the Right, rules. right, I
1: have got a, I've got a defect up there. You could put your hand in my defect and take it take my, my pulse just like this. Before <laughs> I squeeze hard, the thing would pop up. <laughs> when, but uh, When did you get a titanium plate in there? Oh, that was after about a year at the end of my the year they waited a year before they put a plate in your skull because it was considered a, tamina- a contaminated wound. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure what that meant to the medical people but it meant to me it meant you waited a year and put the plate in but uh, so this football film, my dad got it from the university of of Delaware where he worked and it was blue with with like a Michigan thing with you know yellow stripes so in uh, occupational therapy I got a can of olive draft paint with my they'd make it redo everything with my left hand. I spray painted this thing uh, olive draft my roommate at the time he had been there longer than I had and apparently I was the, his, the perfect roommate for him because I had lost my sense of smell and taste and apparently he'd been in a body spica cast from here you know down to his knees for like six months and he stunk to high heaven so and I didn't smell him so I was apparently the perfect his sister got this uh Button book, uh, where you had a blank button and a bunch of things you could p- put on the button, and but it also had some, uh, you know, bullet holes with the shattered glass type things. <laughs> so I put one of those on the front of the front of the of the uh, football helmet, and and I had a, a a little badge, you know, maybe three inches around. Said my head is a depressed area. <laughs> said I'd wear that on my on my bathrobe around the hospital. I. You know, people would stop and look at me, and they read that, and they look at me, and they go, "Oh!" And they just—they kind of move out out of the way. They didn't want to mess with this guy. He might have been crazy. Dark, dark humor is popular in yeah, our family. Yeah. It was well, dark humor. You know, in Bethesda at that time, there was probably all, always about a dozen of us young lieutenants. Uh, you know, between the eighth floor and the fourteenth floor of the, what well, do they call it, Roosevelt's erection, the tower at uh, <laughs> to Bethesda. Uh, Anyway, and, and we had a, we didn't know it at the time, but we had a great group dynamic going on. There was always someone who was worse off than you. So when you started to feel sorry for yourself or started to get down, your buddies would come in and say, "Hey, what about you know, what about Eisenbach over there? Or what about Vitucci over here? Or so and so, Smitty." Mm-hmm. You know? And and sure enough, there was always somebody better off than you who was putting up the good fight. So you know you never got too down on yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are those are important lessons oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. for life, right you there. You bet. You bet. I mean, we can complain. I'll be the for I'll be the person complaining about oh I, oh I I, I, I jammed my finger and I'm all uh, mad about it because I can't do something. It's like no, you, what you need to do is be quiet and as I always say, do what you can. You know, sure, you do sure. what you can. Um, so so you get down. So now we'll go back to college. You got the elevator working. You got uh, <laughs> And how long does it take? Do you, how long does it take to get your? Your doctor? What'd you get your doctorate in?
1: I got my doctorate in, in speech language pathology, you know, with a minor in psychology. Uh, but at first, I had to get the master's, and uh, I, I'm not sure how the University of Florida looked at my transcript from the Naval Academy and how they factored in, you know, weapons and navigation <laughs> and and courses like that I, that I took. But I had to do a whole lot of uh, uh, undergraduate courses before I could, you know, move into the graduate level courses. So it took me. I think about three years to get the master's degree, going to school full-time. And the VA was, you know, picking up the tab for that. VA has been very good to me, very good. And I know there's a lot of complaints out there about the VA, and I'm sure some of them are warranted to some degree or another. But uh, you've got to understand with a VA, you know, it doesn't happen yesterday. It doesn't happen five minutes from now. It happens, it'll happens. it happen down the road. But as long as you, you know, check every box and go from a b c d instead Mm -hmm. of trying to jump from a to f you know it'll all work for you Mm -hmm. Uh, great outfit Uh,
0: at what point did you meet uh meet sherry
1: i met sherry after i had my master's degree uh i worked for a year down in orlando at an easter seals community and it was a great experience my one of my old profs at the university of florida invited me to come back up to the medical center there and become one of the staff speech pathologists at the medical center and I said, great, Which, so I did that. Sherry was a, a staff occupational therapist, had an office uh, kind of across the hall from me. Uh, we met, We met, uh, and being dull normal about these things, like most men apparently, I, I didn't catch on fast enough. So we had a mutual friend who was an, the other master speech pathologist there, and she had us over for dinner one night. Great. And I still I still didn't get it. So we were at a convention one time, one summer, and we were having lunch together, myself and the other speech pathologist who was also a friend of Sherry's. And she said, to Ike, said, do you why do you think I invited uh, you and Sherry over for dinner? I said, uh, uh, you like us? <laughs> she said, listen, if you don't, when we get back from this convention, if you don't ask her out within two weeks, she's gonna ask you out, said, oh God. <laughs> so, you know, I asked her out and we went out. We, we dated for a while and uh, eventually, you know, everything fell into place and we got engaged. Uh, meanwhile, I had uh, kind of given up on marriage. I had dated a fair amount and, you know, I was just running into wall after wall. So, but I decided, you know, I want to be a dad. I love kids. I'd always loved kids. So I went to the Children's Aid Society of Florida and told them I wanted to adopt a kiddo. Well, back then, and this was now the late 60s, early 70s, they looked at you like you had a hole in your head, of course, which I did. (laughs) So that was okay, But (laughs) but they said, look, they gave me all this stuff to read and all these exercises to go through and said, you come back in a couple of months, and if you still want to pursue this thing, we'll talk about it. Well, so I did, and this process took about nine months, but eventually I was approved. I mean, they, my, everybody in my family had to submit letters and all my friends, and they just they sliced and diced me one side up one side and down the other because they weren't going to let one of their kiddos get in a home with some kind of freaky guy, you know, And which you totally understand, yeah. uh, but uh, getting engaged, all that went away. You know, if you're going to get married, that's what they would want. They wanted, obviously, a two-person situation for their kids and a stable, so uh, if you got engaged or something like that during the, this process, uh, it was over. But I had been accepted, and sure enough. As soon as we got engaged, I called my caseworker and told her, "Just great, I, way to go!" And boom, the, thing, the adoption's off. Though, <laughs> I said, "Okay, that's fine. We'll do it the old-fashioned way," which we did.
0: <laughs> and then, and at this time, you still uh, pursuing your doctorate at this time? I am pursuing my
1: doctorate at this time. That's right. You know. and that was about seven years going to school half time and working half time. You know, I'd get a fellowship at the VA and mm-hmm. you know half time research fellowship or or clinical fellowship and stuff like that and go to school half-time. Uh, my VA money had run out by then, so I was funding this, which was fine with me.
0: And then uh, at some point, you get you finished with the uh, marriage, you get married, and you start having kids. This is true. Matt. Matt. He's the third kiddo. Here we go. <laughs> my time to shine. Yeah, this is your moment. What, uh, what was it like for you yep. growing up with a dad? You know, uh, I, I don't
3: think it was a typical childhood compared to my friends. Um, he would uh, charge into room It probably felt like four in the morning, um, but it was probably more like seven o'clock. Wake us up. We'd all be out, like in the hallway, in line, like formed up, ready to go prior to school. <laughs> and he would, you know, do what he called belly busters, was basically <laughs> morning PT uh, with the family, um, you know. And obviously, like, it was very limited, but we did, like, push-ups, sit-ups, jumping jacks. Um, what else do you have us do? That's about the only thing I was thinking of. Yeah. And so it was just, like, I don't think anybody else's kids did that at the time. Uh, <laughs> you have that Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, he would wake us up by, like, playing Reveille. Uh, you know, I knew what Reveille was before I joined uh, the military. Um, it was. It was... They couldn't chew gum. It was somewhat controlled chaos. There was a lot of discipline there that uh, you know, maybe other kids didn't have. We got, a, we got put on restriction, um, which I didn't know what that was until I went to NAPS. Um, like as opposed
0: to being grounded? As opposed to being grounded. We got, we got put on restriction.
3: And that's just what it was called. And we had to like explain what it was to our friends and- you know. <laughs> Can't go to the movies now nope. I'm on restriction, right. sorry. What is that? Um, so we have to explain that's being grounded. Um, yeah, he was kind of like this uh, this uh, hero to like a lot of our friends though because he was like, he was really good with our friends and he was just like kind of like a wild man. Uh, he was notorious throughout the uh, school system of uh, not being a guy to mess with if you were like a school administrator. <laughs> I think
1: the uh <laughs> you mess it? with my kids. I'm going to be talking to you. This you know? is <laughs>
3: not in the notes, but uh, I'll tell the story. I think it was like, sixth grade, and uh, I had a friend who would get in trouble in class regularly and you know like you know i'm the youngest kid so a lot of teachers knew who i was and my sisters were probably better at school at that time than i was and so you know the teacher pulls me aside one day and she's like you need to stop being friends with chino um he's just a bad influence on you and so i go home tell my dad that he goes well we'll see next day like it's you know the school that has like the loudspeaker that like clicks on from when the office calls and i think you know one of the one of the office staff was like uh you know Mrs. schneiderman uh i think uh mr eisenbach is here she's like oh great i'll send matt down to the office and you could kind of hear it in the voice of the uh the office staff and they're like no, no no he's he's here to see you uh, <laughs> and the whole class was just like <laughs> what is happening uh so yeah it was is it was clearly different you know it's uh the, growing up with like somebody that is like the essence of the Marine Corps, like discipline, kind of like iron-fisted, uh, is what people think I, you But know, fair, sure, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's what we're calling it these days. Uh, most of the time, like you know, there were things that you know you just have to do because that's the way I want them done, or that's what that's I said. How we do them in so, our house, yeah. right? Which is like, that's what he wants. So, you know, you kind of had to grow up uh, learning just to like, you know, roll with that sort of stuff, which is, you know, a lot of what you see in the military. It's like, mm-hmm. we do things this way just because it's the way we do it. Um, or it's because the way I, w- I want it. But, you know, not everything is like that in the military. You know, you get you know input, which I don't, at like eight years old, I didn't have a lot of input in,
0: in things. But. So at what point did you decide you were go to the Naval Academy?
3: Uh like him, we would schedule trips around the Annapolis area to go visit friends and we'd wind up uh you know at the academy or <laughs> you know, we'd psychological we'd, warfare. We'd, right. We'd go uh we'd go to San Diego for spring break and uh go check out check out the naval station, uh things like that. Uh and so, you know, I'd kinda known for a while like you know, I wanna be a pilot, that's kinda what I wanna do. Um and I think the best way to go about that is probably go to the Naval Academy. Um, and so I probably like early high school kind of had that idea in, in mind. Um, like him, I probably wasn't the best student ever. Uh, I got better over time, but at that time I didn't really like, put a lot of effort into uh, school and homework. So I had to go to uh, what was called Naval Academy Prep School, mm-hmm. which is just you know basically an academic year to get you ready for the Naval Academy. Um, I found
1: out about restriction there, uh, <laughs> <What> <laughs> restriction <breathing> was, right? <laughs> uh. Well, I'll tell you, if I can, my, 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 my one of my favorite stories about Matt was when he was uh, getting ready to apply for the Naval Academy, you know, I thought he had taken the PSAT or whatever that is, mm. the preset. And I thought, well, we got to bump this up a little bit. So, you know, I'll, I'll challenge him. I, I, so I, I made a bet with him. I said, I bet I can score higher on the SAT than you can. He looks at me like, of course, that I got three heads and fourteen ears. Oh, Dad! (laughs) So I, I meanwhile, had strategically bought some of these uh, prep books that Mm -hmm. I was leaving around the house because we played a win over here in the (laughs) Marine Corps, hoping he would buy into those. You know, he didn't. But we scheduled the the SAT and uh, we took it, and the the results come back, and you know, you got to be careful what you wish for. I outscored him, and. I had like a six fifty or seven fifty out of eight hundred on the English side, and he looks. He "Dad, no one ever gets seven fifty in English." So that all just came back to haunt me. You know, I beat him on that, but uh, he he uh, you know he had a lot of things going for him. He was an Eagle Scout. Uh, he lettered in a couple of sports at high school, and uh, he did. He had a good uh, interview with a with the blue and gold officer, a fellow who kind of recruits for the Naval Academy and you know around the area. And They got him all over the country probably right. helps that he
3: knows all those people too so.
1: <laughs> well i don't think so but and i didn't know anybody on the on the admissions board and it wouldn't have helped if i did
0: you know you got in there yourself and you ended up being a, a submariner though
3: mm-hmm. uh you know the naval academy like any selection program is going to be tough and there's you know, only a limited number of spots and there's you know physical requirements that you have to meet uh you know i don't have 20 20 vision anymore so uh probably being a pilot was not in in the in the works for me so i just went uh you know i think i got selected as a surface warfare officer and then you know i didn't necessarily want to do that i wanted to do something different uh or more challenging and so i went not ask to be a, a submarine officer and you have to you have to ask to get an interview with the uh, uh, the naval reactors uh personnel and so uh you know, I went and saw the the captain on the yard, who was the the head submarine officer there, and you know he looked at all my stuff and said, "You picked the wrong major." I was an econ major at the time, and uh, again, probably didn't have the best grades ever, but I was good enough in math and science that he uh, let me through onto the the naval reactors interview. So it went from there. Uh, you got to go still kind of like old school, where you used to have to go interview with Admiral Rickover, and he'd. <laughs> play mind games with you they still they keep that tradition alive uh you still go interview with the four star that's head of naval reactors but uh fewer mind games more just you know technical interview and then go
0: and how, how many years did you end up doing
3: i did six i got out in 2012 uh july of that year so just a little over
1: six years Nice.
0: and so ike what are you doing now
1: i am uh, what i call fully retired and enjoying it immensely <laughs> Uh, after after my speech pathology uh, career kind of it just kind of petered out uh, here in the pacific northwest it's a whole uh different uh atmosphere and uh, ball game for allied health professionals than it is on the east coast which was okay but uh, so i in about nine, in 95 i uh, went into selling uh, life insurance and mutual funds uh which uh which i enjoyed but uh wasn't wildly successful at, but was successful enough to, you know, pay the bills and keep some income coming in. But finally, I, uh, I uh, ditched that and decided to live a life of uh, leisure, shall we say? But uh, you know, every day is a little bit different. You know, getting up in the morning is not uh, typical. You got to get braces on and and uh, make sure you don't fall out of bed. You know. One of my theories is gravity always wins and it always does. So uh, everything's just a little bit more difficult but uh, it's okay. It uh, sure beats uh, being at Arlington kind of looking up at the sod uh, which is where I theoretically should be.
0: Well, we are uh, certainly glad that you didn't end up there. Likewise. And that you ended up here. It's it's, uh, probably a good place to wrap it up. Um, Just awesome to sit and talk with you um well likewise jaco <laughs> did you have any closing thoughts matt anything that i missed
1: i don't have any closing thoughts <laughs> <laughs> well you I, uh, have <laughs> just, just one thought here's, here's some of this you, we almost always miss uh in the service and frankly in any kind of industry and stuff like that and that's the the part that uh, your spouse plays for you my wife has been terrific over the last 41 years uh, she's uh, A the love of my life and B the mother of my children and uh, you know I, I just I don't think I could get through a week without her uh, she she helps me she uh, points out where I'm you know turning left when I maybe should stay the straight and narrow you know she's a good cook uh, she's pretty good at managing that money <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that, and I love her dearly <laughs> well that's that's awesome and uh yeah like we we can often overlook the 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 families you know whether right, it's right. The, the husband, the wife, the kids they all make a huge sacrifice but for those that are still in the military you know they always make the sacrifice sure, to, sure. Uh, to to support you know their spouse so absolutely to the families out there that are out there supporting the spouses um, thank you to you all and sir, you know it's it's just been an honor to sit here and talk with you and and thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. More importantly though, obviously um thank you for your for your service and your sacrifice. Well, you as well, jocko and Also you, yes. Yeah, well, we're waiting on that echo. <laughs> uh everybody serves in their own way. There we go. You just got to you just got to first spell from Echo Charles. Uh, we we you know, the, the sacrifice that you made, the efforts that you made, um, you know, it's what allows us to be here today as a free people doing what we're doing. So thank you for for putting your your own safety and your own life on the line for this country. And we deeply
1: appreciate it. Well, thank you. For your service again and for all those out there who have served and are
0: serving, you know, get some. (laughs) (laughs) Hoorah. Awesome. Thanks, Ike. Appreciate it, and with that, Charles Robert Ike Eisenbach has left the building and honored to have him on to talk to, hear his perspective. Kind of a crazy life, starting with growing up in the Philippines yeah it's funny. The father, his dad sounded like a character <laughs> yeah yeah a character
2: he's like yeah the he's like from the philippines right but not technically filipino so you yeah. know so they say, like, oh yeah you're from the philippines it's like not computing it's mm-hmm. good
0: interesting stuff um and it's just awesome for us to sit here and of course get to get to talk with another hero Another individual that it just steps up and overcomes, reminding me, reminding us, us yeah. right, that we need to do more, that we can do more. Is there anything, Echo Charles, that you recommend that we should all do? Yeah. What is it? Jiu Jitsu. Okay. Of course. Okay.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. I think. Of the many reasons to do jiu I think we've concluded, number
0: one is that it's fun. That should be, however, I don't know if it's the biggest reason. I'm not sure. It's the reason that will keep you with it. Oh, yeah. There's so many strong reasons, though. We'll just say fun slash beneficial. Here's the weird thing. Like, on social media, somebody asked me all these different <coughs> questions, all these different questions about what would you do if, what would you do if you have trouble Controlling your temper, do jiu-jitsu. What do you do if you have trouble detaching? Or what's a good way to learn to detach? Do jiu-jitsu? What's a good workout to start getting in shape? jiu-jitsu? What's a good way to let off steam and not get stressed out? jiu-jitsu? You see what I'm saying? Yes. It's just answer, 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 yeah. answer, answer. So yeah, pretty much across the board, what we are saying, do jujitsu. Yes. When you do jiu-jitsu? you got to have a gi for okay, sure. You're good.
2: gonna need a gi. So when you do gi. This is the ghee you're gonna get, origin ghee. It's not just one origin ghee; get as many as you want. But you have different uh selections. is mm-hmm. what I'm saying. See what I'm saying? So, one of the reasons to get an origin ghee—not that it's fun. It is fun to get an origin ghee for yes, sure.
0: It is fun to get an origin. But gi. oddly enough,
2: they're factually the best. Is that how a world. normal
0: person feels when they shop?
2: Yes. You ever thought? What do they call it? Like some
0: therapy, like shop therapy,
2: yeah, shopping, yeah, 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 yeah. or is it? Is yeah. that what it's
0: called? Shop therapy. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like what it's called. <laughs>
2: or some. No. Well, yeah, I don't know if, it, but it's that situation mm-hmm. where it's like therapeutic to go shopping. Some mm-hmm. people just go window shopping.
0: I think what I uh, have you ever heard my me rage against consumerism? Because I'll do it right now. Mm, well, you know, so uh, you people I, that I buy understand. everything, right? Yeah. I think what happens is there is a certain level of gratification that you get from building something making something yeah, right yeah, yes whether it's a brick wall whether it's a re b- hanging drywall in the kitchen mm-hmm. like it, it there's a there's a satisfaction that you get from it from creating something
2: yeah.
0: well i hate to say it but sometimes for some people shopping starts to kind of replace that yeah and and you know they want to create something cool they can just click on amazon and it's coming and they kind of get a little oh, dose yeah. of it a little dose of it oh, feels yeah. good yes so there is that when you buy an origin key I will say you feel this a little one. bit what's better though is when you buy an origin key What you kind of feel you look when you buy some uh, Random thing off of am- amazon.com. Mm-hmm. You don't know where that thing came from right it, You're not connected to it mm, Yes, yeah. no, you know when you buy an origin key You know what you, you know hear, exactly hear, what's hear. happening. You know exactly where it came from. You know what it means It's true. You know what it represents It's true, you know that it has soul so,
2: sir Heck yeah So, so get yourself an origin game. Well what you're talking about Is completely correct well, So I had both So you know You're t- saying making something Or doing something Creating right? something Creating something Yes So this may or may not count So I, I switched the door, some doorknobs In my house big time right you see what i'm saying No. Yeah, but you got gratification right yes a exactly level right. of
0: satisfaction you but felt good about it especially you shut that door to cause yeah right? shuts solid
2: yeah. Sure, <laughs> heck yeah <laughs> well one of them the locking thing was mm-hmm. like jammed up you had to it was a thing it was just giving me issues mm-hmm. like given
0: did you overcome
2: the state of my doorknob that was like that wasn't an acceptable state okay it was in my room fixing that whole situation was like, that Gratifying. was something that needed to be done, and I did it by myself. Same thing with a, a different doorknob. It Dang. needed a lock, it didn't have a lock.
0: Okay. So right. there's
2: three altogether with different issues. See what I'm saying? But, okay, so I did it, yes.
0: Universally you overcame it. Overcame it,
2: did it, gratification. But on top of that, I shopped for the new doorknobs on Amazon, and I got gratification from that too. Okay. See what I'm saying? But, so that fact does remain. But with the Ghee you have the addish the additional gratification. That not of course they're the best ghee's in, in the yeah, world, yeah. but they are made in
0: America. Imagine that, like you know when you're a kid you want the best car. Yes, right? Yes. But it's hard to afford that car. Yeah. Origin ghee, it's like, Oh, you want the best ghee? Cool, you can afford yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You Just can make it happen.
2: Yeah. Or you could go get the the not the not best gi. Up to you. But I mean,
0: uh, well, that's on you, though. Yeah. yeah. Let's
2: face it. That's on you. That's not
0: encouraged behavior. Oh, no. no,
2: (laughs) no, Man, come on.
0: Nonetheless, get your gi. Origin gi at originmain.com. Yeah. And the good thing is, if you need other clothing items outside the realm of jujitsu, outside the realm of gis, outside the realm of rash guards. Yes. Then you can get other clothing materials, such as T-shirts, such as hoodies, such as, yes, jeans. American made denim. Yeah. Same deal. And you might be thinking, well, why stop there? Don't worry. We didn't stop there because you, you can get boots, too. You can get origin boots made in America. But what, you know where the leather's from, though? Where? Oh, it's from America. <laughs> you know where the stitching is from, though? Yes. Yeah, 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 it's from America. <coughs> but yeah. you know where they're actually assembled, though, to be honest with you? America. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and then there's some uh, Some supplementation Yeah Yes The most important kind
2: of supplements By the way The ones that work And well In the, sen- in the case of milk The kind that tastes like dessert So yes That is the best kind of supplements In my opinion But, <laughs> but joint warfare Krill oil These are free joints Keep you in the game That's a big deal like, doesn't matter how much you Actually, can deadlift. Actually, that is the deal. It's the deal, Let's right? Face the it, if you're deal, not in the game, then, then you just sort of not in the not game. You're not in the game at all. Yeah, like, you know how, like, you're, you know, the kind where, you, like, you're super strong, but, like, your elbows are, are jamming you up so hard, like, bro, you're not strong no. anymore because your elbows can't yeah. take it. See what I'm saying? So, yeah, joint warfare, crude oil. Also, discipline. That's for your brain. Mm-hmm. Brain and body. It's a brain-body yep. sort of scenario. Look at you. That That, <laughs> that is becoming everyday one for me. By the way. Oh, you're on discipline. the D. Discipline. D train all day. Or wait, wait, wait. D plane. Discipline. Plane. The D plane. Oh, right. yeah. Who said that? I think Dave Burke. Oh, is that
0: really? Good dude. Oh, well, is a wait, good dude, <laughs> I think I
2: think <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I'm not sure. Uh, um let me confirm that later. But nonetheless, discipline for your brain every day. It helps. Totally does help.
0: Mulk helps every day too, especially when you got that that little post dinner. You want a little something. Sure. Let's face it. You let's face it. Steak is awesome. Mm-hmm. We all know that. Mm-hmm. But let's just face the facts. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you get done and you got that little craving. Yeah. That little that little want. Sure. You want something called dessert, but you know it's not part of the plan. Do you know? You know it's not on the program. Yeah. You know it is not on the path. Certainly. Yes. Cake is not on the path. No. But that's okay. We got you. You can have dessert. You get some shelves of milk.
2: Also for the kids, Warrior Kid milk. So same deal. (laughs) Same same, deal. Same deal, but more engineered for the kids. Would you say, is that safe to say engineered for the kids? Speaking of engineering for the kids, um, you know what? I'm not even going to mention it. But there was an artifact, not an artifact. Artifact's the wrong word. Uh, A product Mm -hmm. that we sampled at the vitamin shop situation. Are we allowed to talk about this because it might be like against some big reveal plan? You see I what I'm saying?
0: Know. Are you talking about milk bars? <laughs> it's, it's been revealed. Oh, slightly. okay.
2: All right, there you go. Well, nonetheless, look, that is gonna be like another level, even, yeah. another layer of post dinner dessert situation. You see what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, I do know what you're saying. Because it right? is a it is a candy bar yeah, straight that's up. straight up good for you. Yeah, and legitimately good for you. Oh yeah. Doesn't think about that doesn't taste like it. this, this is not way. normal this is this is good
2: yeah it was it was different than
0: what i was used to for sure
2: nonetheless you yes. know how many
0: you know how many i have of those right now how many monk bars i have 200.
2: oh you grabbed them all <laughs> see that's where they
0: went so i was yes, i was wondering I did. Sure, where
2: did those go because you know i kind of wanted some or whatever you know,
0: i never want anything like yeah. i'm always like oh no keep it no you can have it no you know because oh, you know, whatever. Whatever. that's just Sit. my kind of my personality like Sit. i don't even want to have the other stuff yeah no, I, they were like, oh, I, oh I took them all. I put them all right in my car. Uh,
2: okay. All right. So I got all, right. all those no, milk man. bars. You did the right thing. But yeah. Yeah, the milk
0: bars become, well, we're building a plant to make them, by yeah. the way, because no one could make what we wanted. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, oh, okay, cool. You can't figure it out. Cool. Watch this. Moke bars.
2: As many milk bars as you need. Anyway, so yes. So milk bars, not, not currently available, but on the horizon. On we'll the see. horizon.
0: Jocko White Tea is available right now. Yes. If you need something uh, organic. In your life because you want to feel like one of those people that is you know healthier all and healthier than you are oh yeah now you can come back at them when someone's like is that organic actually yes it is <laughs> otherwise <laughs> i wouldn't put it in my body certified yeah oh yeah A certified organic what mm. step yeah, so there you go and by the way this stuff is all available at the vitamin shop nationwide yeah which is pretty it's convenient bottom line yeah and normally that's kind of I, I, I'm a little troubled with convenience right because mm. convenience all of a sudden you know what is there a slippery slope to mcdonald's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. not no yeah. there's no. not don't no. let that happen
2: yes sir also we have a store called jocko store they,
3: they always said yes, this. i said yeah. we have a store yeah. of jocko, we a do
0: store. but it's not just you and me it's all of us we the whole group everyone, collectively everyone here has a store your own store yep. our own store mm-hmm. we could have called it that but we didn't think of that back then. Yeah, a store could or the, have just or the people. Uh, you know our store, the Trooper Store, sure. for people that are just getting after it. Anyways, if you if you if are getting after it, maybe you need a Rash Guard, maybe you need a T shirt, maybe you need a hat. Mm-hmm. If you're Echo, you don't need a hat because he doesn't wear a hat. No, very rarely. Yeah. I've never seen you with a hat, not even for one second, yeah. not even in the cold weather. No, I don't think. Wait, maybe I seen you in an Origin beanie.
2: I I think you've never seen me in cold weather. True. Oh wait, yeah,
0: yeah, Utah, that was cold weather. Nineteen oh, degrees yeah, is yeah, cold. You must have had a hat on out there. I
2: don't know if I did or not. Yeah, I had a beanie yeah, on. I yeah, you're right. Beanie. Nonetheless, jocko store.com, yes, represent while you're on the path. That's where you get all this cool stuff. Also, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Mm-hmm. I think. It's important. Varying levels of importance. But yeah,
0: do it. Leave a review if you're in the mood. It's kinda of cool it's kind of a cool thing to do to kind of like just confirm where you're at yeah. in your mental space. Yeah, I think so sure <laughs> Don't forget about the grounded podcast, which is part of the deaf core network yeah. You didn't know about that. Did you we got a whole network called the deaf core network?
2: Yeah,
0: we're building a network Sure, we got three podcasts on it. Jocko podcast grounded podcast and warrior kid podcast.
2: Yep. Yeah.
0: You can subscribe to all of them if you want or none of them whatever, whatever you, like. you can also check out warrior kid soap at irishoaksranch.com there's a kid who's been a warrior kid since day one in the game and guess what he makes his own soap from goat milk goats that he raised and we have a new soap a new soap it's called well it's got some active ingredients that help fight against bacteria <laughs> I don't even know what I'm talking about uh, well uh, bacteria you know, uh, microbials m- microbes yeah those funguses yeah, yeah. fungi fungi it's yeah blispolar. all these things yeah. all these things all those things need to be defeated so we have a soap and it's called killer soap and if you use it it will help you to
2: stay clean yep. also YouTube YouTube channel if you're interested in the video version of this podcast Or excerpts from the podcast you don't necessarily want to
0: watch the whole
2: thing all at once
0: all the time or let's just say you might think that the world would be better place if as the world unfolded and things happened that part of the world exploded or caught on fire (laughs) because echo because he has command of virtual reality Uh Uh he can make my words make things explode he can make my my kettlebell make things blow up yes he can make his own uh magical powers be revealed in Mm. forms of like sparks
2: (laughs) if i'm so inclined yeah
0: Yeah. so that's echo charles he may not be able to control everything in the world but on the jocko youtube channel he can make things happen. Yeah, sure. And video He's well, quite I proud of that. Sure.
2: I haven't used explosions in a while, but, you know, yeah, we, we're going to continue that from time to time, I think. I mm-hmm.
0: hope. Uh, we also got, got an album called Psychological Warfare. It's a little psychological hitter if you need a little bump to get you over a bump. Yes. You can check that out on iTunes, Google Play, or any MP3. We got flipsidecanvas.com where Dakota Meyer is making Visual representations of discipline, pure, distilled onto a canvas that you can then hang on your wall and it will keep you on the path. Also got a bunch of books, Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field <laughs> Manual, Way of the Warrior Kid. Got three of those books. Got Mikey and the Dragons for the little, little kids. Got the Discipline Equals Freedom Field Manual. The audio version of that is, uh, is on iTunes and Amazon Music and Google Play as an MP3. We got Extreme Ownership and the Dichotomy of Leadership, the Fundamentals of Combat Leadership that I wrote about with my brother Leif Babin. We have Echelon Front, which is our leadership consultancy and what we do is we solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com if you need help in your organization with that. We got EF Online, which is online leadership training to get you up to speed as a leader Go to EFOnline.com for that. We've got The Muster, which is our live conference gathering seminar. i got to think of a better word because it's better than all those three things. Everyone that we've done has sold out. This year, we are doing Orlando. We are doing Phoenix, and we are doing Dallas. If you want to come, go to ExtremeOwnership.com every One of these that we have done has sold out, and these are going to sell out too, so get there early. And also, if you need leaders at any level in your organization, check out EFOverwatch.com for executive leadership. Check out EFlegion.com for frontline leadership. These are our platforms to connect the vets that have experience leading with companies that need experienced leaders go check out those platforms. Also wanted to say, uh, talking to Ike, asking him about any charities he wanted me to mention. And he said the Semper Fi Fund, which uh, does a bunch of stuff for Marines, for Marine families, for Marines that are transitioning f- uh, outside out of, the mill- out of the Marine Corps, and also helps them out with their health and wellness. So that's semperfifund.org. And also uh, he wanted you to check out the Fisher House, which is when troops get wounded and they're in the hospital for an extended period of time. The Fisher House provides them with a place to stay, provides their families with a, f- a place to stay in the area. So it's fisherhouse.org. It's a great, both these organizations are great organizations, so check those out. And if you feel like you want to hear more from Echo and I, you know, for whatever reason, if you want to throw a correction at us if we made a mistake, which is entirely possible, we probably need it. Well, we're there. We're all on the interwebs. And we're also on, uh, that means we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, and we are on bulk And you can um, find Echo at Echo Charles, and I am at. Jocko Willink and thanks once again to Charles Robert Bobby Bob Eisenbach Ike an absolute honor to meet with him today to talk to him and to hear his incredible story of service to America and the rest of the veterans out there that are on active duty the ones that have already retired that have left the service all of you that have put on the uniform thank you for your service and of course the same goes out to our police and law enforcement and firefighters and paramedics and EMTs and dispatchers and correctional officers and Border Patrol and Secret Service you take care of us here on the home front and you are appreciated as well and to both those groups thanks to your families for the support that you give to the folks that are wearing the uniform and everyone else out there. You know, when you think about, when you think about the challenges that you face, that I face, that we all face, what challenges are we up against? What, what external power is trying to hold you down? Going through your little battle, your little battle in the world. And then if you can, you can remember You can remember someone like Ike and you can remember what he did facing these challenges shot in the head wounded paralyzed hospitalized and you know what any one of us can fold under those challenges of life you can do that you can fold you can give in or you can do what ike did and what ike does every day which is take on those challenges by getting out there and getting after it so until next time this is echo and jocko out